ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Today, episode 25, Die Another Day. Die Another Day. 25 already? 25 already, yes. Episode 25. Here we are with Die Another Day, the film that we have been roulette randomized, or randomly rouletted, perhaps is the better way to say They grow up so fast. <laughs> yeah, we really do. And Josh, Josh, today, it's just me and you. Yeah, we're absent. We're absent of uh, Mr. Chapman today. Yeah, Jeff just Jeff just got in touch with us and said, "Look, guys, this film is so crap that I want nothing to do with it." <laughs> That's what he said. I'm sure he had a legitimate excuse for not doing it that morning. Well, yeah. No, the truth is, you know, just the nature of scheduling and uh, responsibilities and whatnot, Jeff was not able to record the show with us, but he has sent us in his full review, or I should say uh, a summarized, uh, truncated review, which we'll read out when we go to do our money pennies. But yeah. Spoiler alert, he didn't like it. Well, (laughs) most Bond fans don't like this film, and I don't think that Jeff's opinion is going to be too much different from most of the Bond fans out there who tend to let's say, let's say, put this film more towards the back of the shelf. Okay, so you're saying that you think we're going to be more kind of like in the middle of the shelf here in this one? Is that what you think our consensus will be? Well, I don't know. I'm not really sure what our consensus will be, but I do know that this is considered to be one of the weakest James Bond films. It's one of the weakest uh, critically received films as well in the series. Fans aren't a fan fans aren't really fans of it and it, it tends to be the one that's pissed and shat on quite a bit what's interesting though is that two of one of the back in the day there was two film critics that i really followed there was roger ebert and then there was Oben gleberman of entertainment weekly when he when him and that's when him and alicia swarsbaum were doing reviews for entertainment weekly when it was still a good magazine does it still exist in the paper form it does. It does. But it's not the same as, as it ever was, as it was before. It's, okay. been, it's been totally bought out. And, it's, you know, like it's, it's like a it's like an info dump that really you can get everything online anyway. So they're mm-hmm. just fighting for validation, really, to yeah. like the supermarket crowds where it used to be to me a more of a prestigious magazine, in my opinion. Um, anyways, Gleiberman, uh, he, he really enjoyed the movie. He gave it an A uh, and Roger Ebert seemed to enjoy it as well. Yeah, I've got Ebert's review here, which we can go through when we get to that critical corner. Uh, But, you know, generally speaking, Bond fans aren't really hot on this film. You, I'm sure, will talk about this when we get to Cubby's Corner, but Die Another Day was the 40th anniversary of Bond, the 20th Bond film, and they tried really hard to pack it full of references and homages to the previous ones, didn't they? They really did. Yeah, and you know, for uh, so for better a or nostalgic, for worse, nostalgic overload there. But I, I I think in some ways, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overload going on in this film, and uh, it's it's down to us to dissect it and open it up and share it, spread it among our audience, and see what they think. But Sigmund as I, Freud analyze this. <laughs> but as I as I said, I don't think that uh, we're we're going to necessarily put out new opinions on this film. But I hope that. As you listen to the episode, you know, come along the ride with us. You'll enjoy it, and we can put a fresh spin on some of this stuff because we've 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 got some good research here. We've uncovered some interesting, turned over some interesting stones, haven't we? Well, by stones, if you mean squeezing blood from, then yes, <laughs> yeah, of course, that's what I mean, of course. And I'm looking forward to see to, to uh, hear what dear old Granio thinks of the movie too. I'm yes, sure our, uh-huh. our listeners are as well. Yeah, we've got another interview with uh, our grandmother, Josh, and we'll have a have a listen to Double what she O-G-O. thinks of it. Double O-G-O is fresh and ready to go with this one, and we'll get to her later on after our money pennies are scored as well. 
So thanks again, guys, for tuning in. Um, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been three weeks, actually, since we recorded uh, a film episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed the literary gun barrel episodes that we put in there. Uh, we did a full-length feature on Moonraker, the novel, and a full-length feature on From Russia With Love as well. More, we'll have a little bit of. We'll talk about Moonraker a little bit more in this episode too. We will, and uh, even though there's no source material from Fleming's world that comes into this film, at least that inspired the the film, there's no book Die Another Day that Fleming wrote. I'm going to be uh, dedicating our literary discussion today, Josh, to a little bit of Kingsley Amos's The James Bond Dossier. Now, one of the things that Amos did in writing about the James Bond character before he took up pen to create a James Bond novel, which uh, became Colonel Sun, uh, one of the things he did is he kind of looked at the, the character from a literary point of view, and the James Bond dossier is a document is a is a publication that contains chaptered essays essentially on the world of the James Bond books. And one of them I want to tap into today, and I think it's got some real, real uh, I think it's got some real important and interesting links to what we're going to see and die hmm. another day. So Colonel Sun is that the opposite of Colonel Moon? Uh, well, potentially, yes. I, I'm not going to get too much into that, though, because the way I'm going at it isn't really to look at parts of that book. I'm going to look at it from Kingsley Amos's literary theory point of view on the James Bond character, and hopefully we'll have, have some interesting chat there about how he views the character, the books, and the world of James Bond as it had grown to be hmm. by the time he wrote in connection with this film. So, I will give you a heads up when that time rolls around. But for now, excellent. For now, guys, thanks very much for tuning in. It is episode 25 of Bond by Numbers. Whether you love Die Another Day or love to hate it, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. We've got lots of fun and good features. So, Josh. Your mama. Your <laughs> uh, yeah. M- mama jokes are, 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 you know, they go all the way to the beginning of time. <laughs> I'm sure the Romans had their own variation of uh, Yo Mama. Mater, mater jokes. Major jokes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, guys, thanks for tuning in to Bond by Numbers. We hope you enjoy the show. So what, our first feature then, uh, the world of James Bond to start us off. Yeah, what's going on in the world of James Bond uh, through various sources, you know, up, on, getting, uh, up trying to get up on, you know, information on the new Bond film. Uh uh, we got a couple of things to talk about uh, today in regard to that. Uh, mm. There were some pictures that were released uh, from the movie set. Uh, there's a photo of uh, Lashana Lynch, who is part of this big controversy going on now. Is she the new Bond? Did they get cast like, uh, you know, a person of color, a female as James Bond that caused all this online, up, you know, controversy with like alt-right fan bases, I guess, trying to stir that pot. Uh, from all we know is that she's playing uh, the actress Lashana Lynch. She's playing a, a character named 007, not necessarily Bond himself, who I think is pretty much AWOL at the beginning of this story from what I gather. Yeah, uh, it seems to me that people are really getting their pee hot over this unnecessarily. And of course, there's, there's going to be a, a subsection of of the Bond fan community that that likes this, that doesn't like it, and are going to want to get in on all of this. But as far as yes. I understood, you know, just just from the little bits of the the story that have been released, um, 
or which I suppose I should say aren't, you know, uh, aren't a held secret. Bond is basically called back into action here in this film. I think he has something to do. I think Felix Leiter's character is trying to get him back involved in something. And so I kind of read it if I, I kind of read it as he's not 007 anymore. It's very possible. He's, like, it, he's kind of like like a consultant or an operative or something like that. Yeah, I mean, because we, we, we got a picture here of uh, Lashana Lynch. It's a pretty badass picture. She has like her hair is really short. Um, if you remember, uh, I'm not sure that's her real, if that, her hair is that short. Because I remember when she was in Captain Marvel, she had like long, kind of long 90s bushy hair, kind of like long, but, but it was straight, not curled. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't know, it's a, it's a cool look on her. She has uh, like an earpiece and looks like kind of like uh, – it's not a military uniform, but it looks like one, almost like a mercenary's uniform. She has like an MP5 submachine gun and a holster on her hip. She has like ammo clips in front of her and stuff, and she looks pretty badass, actually. She did. You know what she reminded me of in that picture, man? She reminded me of um, <laughs> of Robert Carlyle and Denise Richards and Bond when they were doing the uh, the nuclear... Uh, not Azerbaijan. Was it Was it in uh, Kazakhstan or something yeah. like that? What, what was yeah. it? Oh, gosh, I can't even remember. It, but... The decommissioning. De- of the That's nuclear it. missiles. Yeah. yeah. Looks like a boiler suit. A little bit, yeah. But anyway, yeah, she does look pretty cool. But you know, looks interesting anyways. It does look interesting. But I, I suppose And there, there's a and then there's a photo. I'm I'm sorry. There's that photo too of Leia Sedu where she's talking to a walkie walkie-talkie wearing like my mom jeans. So, we don't know if that pertains to anything either. Yeah, I hadn't seen that. I mean, that could just be a production shot from her coming back from lunch. I dare say. I dare say what it probably is. And that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm not I'm not really wanting to follow the threads of these stories too deeply because I, I want to be surprised. I don't want to feel like I've built up mm-hmm. an idea of how the running script looks. And then when it comes to fruition, it doesn't quite match what I've already built up in my head. And I, I don't want any of that sort of fandom. So yeah. I, I'm quite happy to talk about what's out there in a very surface level and to speculate yeah. for fun. But, you know, I also have trust in the filmmakers this is still a Craig era film and even Spectre, which we agreed had a lot of problems, was still able to deliver high hits on style. So, you know, I'm thinking we're in, we're going to have a good film with Craig at the helm. He's going to be in good shape. We know that this is going to be a decent film regardless and a fun film to watch, regardless of how it pulls off its script. Right. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, news from the inside. Um, as I, t- I told you, when, it, when one of our viewers, he's in the industry and uh uh, he ran into Christoph Waltz last night. Oh, well, so by viewers, you mean listeners, right? This is the, yeah, yeah okay. Yes. Tell the story. Yes. Tell that story. He was just going to the bathroom on one of the, on one of the sets in one of the studios downtown Toronto, and uh, he almost bumped into Christoph Waltz. He almost and did he, or he, he did? Because he, he, he that's that, that a big, big difference in the story there. I think he was just leaving the bathroom as he came in. And then he said, I, snu- I think I snubbed Christoph Waltz on Messenger. And I said, Okay, and then he then he looked up on the call sheet, and him and Liam Hemsworth are filming a movie in Toronto. So, all right, okay, right. I thought you were going to go somewhere different with the story, like they ended up crossing streams at the urinal or something. No, no, not not at all. But he said he snubbed. I don't understand how not not making it to the bathroom by the time that he left the before he left the bathroom is a snub. But I don't know. What's filming in Toronto right now with with Christoph Waltz? Uh, he gave me the name of the, of the movie, actually. I'll just get it for you right now. I have it on my messenger. Yeah, you'll oh. be able to find that message right behind the ones I sent you about why are you late this morning. <laughs> you see it there? Oh, great. Yeah, Dodge and Miles. Dodge and Miles. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, Dodge is sick and in debt. Miles explains a hunt in the city and gives him a three-minute head start. 
I'm guessing Dodge is probably Liam Hemsworth and Miles is the mysterious guy who explains a hunt in the city and gives him a three-minute head start. I could see them using Christoph Waltz in that kind of capacity. Christoph Waltz is set to star opposite Liam Hemsworth in an untitled action thriller series, which is in the works. Oh. Uh, Waltz is the latest name to join the Jeffrey Katzenberg-founded short-form content company, Quibi. Oh. Quibi. Jeffrey Katzenberg, he used to be part of the DreamWorks team, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was the K, wasn't he? I think, yeah, he was the K, indeed. With Geffen and uh, Spielberg. That's right. And uh, one thing about Spielberg I, wanted to, I, was, I was going to mention, too, uh, and also because of Bond is being directed, uh, the latest Bond is being directed by Kerry Fukunaga of True Detective fame, uh, is uh, Fukunaga may be directing for Spielberg uh, a four-part HBO miniseries on Napoleon. Hmm, and this is apparently... Yeah, and this is apparently pulled from the, the the unfinished Kubrick project on Napoleon. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, HBO is really good on the historical miniseries like uh, John Adams and Band of Brothers. And they got one on Catherine the Great coming out now, too. So if you're a historical buff, uh, Spielberg and HBO are definitely the way to go. And Fukunaga directing, you probably have some pretty awesome battle scenes, possibly. Well, Spielberg was also linked, wasn't he also linked to this After Dark series, like a horror series that you're only able to watch between sundown and sunrise, local times? I, I think there was something interesting about that that I read. I, I can't remember where uh, I came across it, but... I have, yeah. not heard tell, and I have not heard of tell of that. Fascinating. I will let you know that Toronto right now is like ground zero for a lot of streaming ca- cable TV shows, like Netflix series in particular. Toronto is yeah. ground zero for that right now. Cool. Uh, Well, you know, before we move away from the Bond 25 news, I heard an interesting rumor as well. And I wonder if it has made any ripples over there. I'm talking, of course, about the rumor that the singer-songwriter Jack Savaretti and singer-songwriter Sting are linking up to do the song for this film. Sting doing a Bond song? I like it. I like it a lot, too. And I'm wondering if... Even the police. Oh, the police would have been awesome, yeah. But... That's really, I mean, I didn't know anything about this. I just, just kind of caught wind of this rumor that Jack Savaretti and Sting were, you know, linked to the project. Now, you know as well as I do that that doesn't bear any fruit necessarily, but it's interesting, nevertheless, to have them oh. in the conversation because Sting is a big name and I can see him stroking his ego this way. Oh, absolutely. He definitely has that ego for sure. He's a talented guy, don't get me wrong, but definitely uh, uh, he, has, he has an ego. And speaking of ego, let's come back to Lee Tamahori and Die Another Day, because this film is basically a Bond ego trip. It, yeah, a Bond ego trip in many ways. Um, apparently, though, a lot of the stuff that you see in this film was not 100% approved by Barbara and Michael G. Is that right? So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of studio interference with this movie, from what I understand, and Tamahori as well. Interesting. Now, Tom, I mean, everyone knows Tamahori. If you know, if you know your film, especially '90s cinema and independent cinema, he made a groundbreaking film in '95 called "Once Were Warriors," and it was all about violence in a Maori family. Um, starred Tamara Morrison, uh, every who everyone knows pretty much nowadays as Jango Fett, and the prototype for the clone armies in the in the Star Wars pre- in the Star Wars prequels. Mm-hmm. Then there was, I think, another Rena Owen. I think was another person who was in that movie. Anyways, uh, it was a very good film about uh, New Zealand and the culture at the time and what was going on and alcoholism and families. Uh, it was a very groundbreaking film. And then Tim Ahori basically started to get cred from all, all the way from that. Uh, he started out in the seventies making commercials and then kind of built his way up through the New Zealand film board uh, and t- until doing TV and whatnot. And then of course uh, he did that, he did that movie. 
And then he got into the, I guess, North American uh, film production. He even directed an episode of The Sopranos, uh, episode two of season three, uh, Toodaloo. Now, if you know your Sopranos, this is the episode where Richie Aprile comes out of prison and that's Mm -hmm. his first appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he's a terrible character. I mean, he's a great he's a great character, but he's a terrible human being. Oh, absolutely. And this is the whole episode when he's having the fight with Beansy, uh, uh-huh. you know, his old colleague who runs the pizza place and whatnot and sure, yeah. all of that stuff going on. And there's also the episode where uh, Meta was messing around with her parents and Janice was on her side. And yeah. Anyways, Sopranos is great. So if you haven't seen The Sopranos, watch the rest of the series. It's great. But that episode that Lee Tomahori did was definitely a memorable episode because when Richie Aprile first comes on the scene, you remember this guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, that might have had less to do with Lee Tomahori and more to do with the acting. And David Chase's scripts, most of likely. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he didn't write it. But hey, and you know, that, that's, that's a great start, though. That's, that's a good lead into Cubby's Corner. And I've really been looking forward to it. I have avoided the production notes. I mean, some of this stuff, you know, from when maybe I first saw the film and we've been Bond fans for a long time. But I've deliberately avoided digging into the James Bond archives. I've deliberately avoided reading too much on it because I, I really like the Cubby's Corner. It's as fun for me as I hope it is for the listeners. So, Josh, why don't we just segue straight into it? Tell us. Cubby's Corner, crack it open here for Die Another Day. So Die Another Day is the 20th James Bond film. Uh, the budget is was $142 million. Um, so you can and you can tell on screen. You can see the budget on screen. What was that you said? Uh, hundred and what? Forty-two million. I got a different stat than you. I got one hundred and eighty-seven million budget. Maybe you've got a contemporary one, and I've got an adjustment. You know, very, very possible. Very anyway, possible. Nevertheless, sorry, pal. Anyways, you can see that it's very expensive on screen. Uh, whatever the budget may be, you can see that that on screen for sure. Now, whether or not that budget was used accordingly to make a good movie is another story altogether. But um, the box office, um, not to take any of your thunder or anything, Scott, but the box office I got here is $432 million, And that made this film with this budget and with everything that went along to create it, uh, one of the biggest grossing James Bond films ever at the time before adjusted for inflation. Yeah, I mean, uh, my numbers are a little different, but although it grossed a lot, it, in terms of its return on investment, it was still lower down, wasn't it? Still 21st in the entire series because... Yes. So I mean, it didn't, 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 recruit, didn't yeah. recruit enough, I suppose, right? Yeah, I mean, it certainly made a huge hell of a profit, but not compared to many of the others. Yeah, so Lee, as we mentioned, Lee Tamahori was chose to direct this film. Another film that Lee Tamahori um, uh, made as well was The Edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember this movie because I actually really liked it. Yeah, it was one of those. Too. Yes, if if anyone's seen it, it's basically Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins uh, t- trapped in like, basically cr- they're they're playing crashes uh, and they're essentially trapped in a forest for the entire movie, but they hate each other and want to kill each other. Um, and I, I don't remember any of the, the more specific details in that, but I remember it was a pretty exciting movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. And uh, the use, well, I mean, the the use of animals in the film is fantastic. And then, of course, you've got a great Goldsmith score as well. 
I think probably that was soon after Once Were Warriors was made. I think that was, was his first kind of big American film that um, Lee Tamahori did. So maybe he invested a lot of the kind of style that he did with Once Were Warriors, filming in New Zealand. Um, like that was probably a good transition movie for him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, taking advantage of the forest locale and everything like that, animals, as you said. So it was primarily shot in uh, the United Kingdom, Iceland, and Cadiz, Spain. Can you guess what sequences were filmed in Spain? Uh, yes, I can. I can guess. Are you are you asking me to actually guess? What part of the film or what location in the film uh, was filmed in Cadiz, Spain? Got to be Cuba. That's right. Cuba. In fact, it became so cold on on one of the shooting days there, they were going to film the scene where Holly Berry has her, her Botticelli emergence from the surf. Uh, you know, doing that homage to... Honey Rider, mm-hmm. and with the whole knife belt and everything like that, and it was they were expecting this to be a, they had extras all lined up and everything to make it look like they're walking through Havana, like they were recapturing that image the best way they can, and it, it got all of a sudden the storm, the weather changed dramatically, and for a couple of days it was really cold, like they could not shoot the conditions that they wanted to, and the budget was bleeding because of that. So it really held back a lot, a lot of stuff. And then finally, the weather changed. But they were just about to abandon ship and oh, they were, go back. They were, they were willing just to have a sunk cost and go away. Yeah, exactly. So they might have changed the whole sequence and maybe got rid of Havana completely from the story. Oh, wow. Yeah, no DNA clinic. Or maybe the DNA clinic would be someplace else. Who knows? Yeah, I think they were pretty high up on that idea. A lot seemed to depend upon it. They really were. They wanted to include that that notion, I suppose. And then, you know what? I guess if Bond can go in space, we can have DNA clinics. Well, <laughs> uh, actually, you know what? I kind of, I plan to find, I kind of find Moonraker more probable than that, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I mean, lot, lots of work is being done, you know, with DNA and gene therapy and whatnot. But I don't maybe think maybe those it can laser guns that were so a bit far fetched. I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, in comparison, though, uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Is they filmed in Spain and um, instead of Havana, I guess because of the time as well. It was. Too, it was you can't film in Havana on, on a, on, even though it's, you know, even though we know a lot of the production uh, of, of Bond films are based in the, United, in the United Kingdom, they're connected to American cinema. So, you know, it would be difficult to get for filming permits there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, they filmed at Pinewood Studios, 007 stage. And they also filmed in Maui, Hawaii. Uh, the big wave, the big surfing wave you see in the opening sequence, that was all done there. Oh, um, they so got, that's not North Korea. That is not North Korea. No, no. It is. Uh, it's this place called Jaws, actually, on like on on one of the islands, like in the northern tip. Mm. And uh, they got uh, Olymp- they got Laird Hamilton, who's a well known surfer of the time, uh, and Dave Kalama and Derek Derner, all these guys. Uh, they perform the pre-title sequence that 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 you see. You know, when they come in through the surf and land on the beach. You know, I've always felt that in a film which used so much CGI, and I'm sure you'll get into that. This scene at the beginning is really quite impressive it's too bad it's so dark though like i understand the whole night cover thing but this is actually a really impressively filmed part of the film isn't it he does except he films it like spielberg doing omaha beach like he has all these grays and these grays Mm. and browns you know what i mean like he just does it really it it, it takes a lot of color and life out of it the waves look fantastic and the surfing looks fantastic it really does yeah yeah uh jaws by the way is located uh according to here at pia ahi maui okay Cool. It's on the island of it's on the island of Maui. Mm-hmm. Now the stuff you see on shore that was Cadiz again. 
uh, I guess, taking advantage of the shitty weather that they had. <laughs> and New Quay Cornwall. Oh, wow. Cornwall, yeah. hey? Southwest. Hmm. Yeah. And the, diamond, and the scenes inside Graves' diamond mine that you see were also done in Cornwall at the Eden Project. Oh, I see. I was wondering where they did that, actually, because I felt I always felt, you know, as I was watching this, it's something like Jurassic Park meets, uh, uh, I don't know what, but the Eden Project, that would make sense. Jeff had some comments about uh, Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin set design, like uh, murdering Ken Adam. I think that was his uh, comment that he made at one point while he was watching the movie. Well, you know, it's funny he mentioned <laughs> Schumacher because I've made a note somewhere about Schumacher. It does feel like there's a lot of that plasticky sort of uh, color just jolted right in here. Like you'd expect... I mean, we don't I'm literally have... expecting Arnold Schwarzenegger to to come out with bad ice jokes. Like I literally was for a moment there. <laughs> Although just... the ice palace hotel, sorry, is actually a real. But that's right, it is. Yeah, I, I was wondering if there would be nipples on the mech suit. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Where's George Clooney when you need him? Anyway, um... he wasn't touching this movie. That's for sure. <laughs> he definitely wasn't. I think he learned his lesson. Um... <laughs> Uh, anyway, even though the broccoli have in the past been been curious about doing a uh, an American James Bond, you know they it began with James Brolin, right? That was kind of where that kind of caught on, and that's true. Uh, and then also the guy who was what was that Bond film we talked about where one one of the actors was was they wanted to have his have have his James Bond. It was an American actor. I forget who it was. Well, there was the way back when James Bond of nineteen fifty. What, what year was it? They did the Casino Royale. Oh, yeah, that guy. Barry yeah. Nelson. There was Barry, Barry Nelson. Nelson. Barry Nelson, yeah. And that one actor who wanted to do a Bond, who wanted to do to get all the rights to the Bond films or whatever, and Fleming just didn't get along with them or something. Somebody Wayne. I, I talked about okay. it last episode. Oh, sorry. I missed that. Um, oh, one correction I want to mention from the previous episode is that I mentioned I got the birth dates of Ken Adam and uh, Michael Lonsdale mixed up. No, did you? Um, yeah, because Michael Lonsdale is still around and he's still doing work. So him being born in 1921 is kind of improbable. <laughs> so Ken Adam was born in 1921 and Mr. Lonsdale was born in 1931. I see. Okay. Bringing it back, um, Roger Moore's daughter actually um, was casted in this film. Is that right? And she appears in the film. Deborah Excellent. Moore. That's right. Mm. Can you guess who she is? <sighs> now I'm putting you at the test. That's good. I like this. I like this. Um, I can't, but I would like to say that this is something which I'm sure many Bond fans and listeners right now are shouting at the, uh, shouting through their headphones, or I'm sure they're shouting at us right now. I, look, it's not that I couldn't find this out. It's that I deliberately didn't want to know any of this stuff because oh. I, I love Josh's feature so much. But I'm going to make a guess. I am going to make a guess. Roger Moore's daughter, Deborah. Um, will be, of course, I mean, without question, one of the uh, one of the soldiers on the cargo plane at the end. <laughs> suck, suck through the out the window. That's right. Oh yeah. God, um, no, dude, I really don't know. Where is she? Tell yeah. me. She was the stewardess on the plane going back oh, to London. Oh, cool. That's really cool. Nice. She had yeah. a speaking role too. Yeah, that's right. That's why I remember it. Nice. Yeah, there you go. Be, uh, be, before the uh, the class st uh, started playing. Mm -hmm. Oh goodness! On, on, on the soundtrack, yeah, yeah I like talk. the Clash. But do they remind it? But do they belong in a Bond film? That's the question. 
I'm sure the Clash do. I'm just not so sure that Toby Stevens does. <laughs> Poor Toby Stevens. Mm. I've seen him in other. I've seen him in other stuff. I know that he's actually a pretty good actor, but uh, I I think they didn't know what to get from him, and he didn't know what to get from the role. To just imitate James Bond or something. I guess that was his cue. Mm. Analyze this. <laughs> Indeed. Now, interesting. Now, during that whole Cadiz thing, the island of Los Organos and all that, uh, Holly Berry was actually injured during the production. Uh, there was fragments from a smoke grenade flew into her eye. So. Ouch. Yeah, it took a 30-minute operation to remove the debris. Hmm. Amongst all the all the weather all all the all the, the weather problems that they were having. Yeah, so uh, Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, uh, these guys, these names we we've heard before. They're well, they're, they're part of the principal the writing team for the Craig era now. That's right, and you know, man, it's hard, it's hard for me to believe that the men I know. who are writing those scripts are producing this. I know it. It just like, seems like I don't know. Uh, yeah. It just seems like unreal and, and that, 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 you know, it's it funny does. too, because really I does. watched the documentary on the making of Die Another Day. And this isn't like the other ones you get on the DVDs, which are made by the same production company. It's basically almost like a Steadicam documentary of, of Pinewood Studios and each day and all the stuff that they do. It was actually very eye opening. It was actually way better than the whole film, to be honest with you. Um, it's a really good documentary. But honestly, like Neil Purvis and Robert Wade just seemed like they were stoned the entire interviews pieces that you have with them. They're sitting in the coffee shop coming up with ideas and saying all like these like buzzwords and stuff, but they're not really making any sense at all. And maybe they, I, I don't know, they just seem totally stoned on the making of this movie. You know, and, and Broccoli, uh, Barbara Broccoli is all into it and she wants to make it really good and that was really important to her. In the original script, of uh, Die Another Day, which kind of stayed the same way as they always wanted to do. Like the idea of the prisoner exchange was a big part of the movie. And this to me is like what hooked me is at the very beginning, like, okay, the opening sequence, yeah, it was a bit kind of over the top action, but I like the idea of this prisoner, this Bond being a prisoner of war. Like this could lead to something very interesting, right? And then it just hits a point where I think I think it's when the clash comes in. That's when the movie falls apart for me. Even after the DNA sequence, the DNA uh, laboratory or whatever, that's when it started falling apart to me as a script. Um, and that's where I think they started tacking things on. And you can see the studio pressure that's going on on top on for Purvis and, and Wade and, and 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 Broccoli. I guess just agreeing to it. I, I suppose I don't know. Well, I, but, I understand uh, that this is not their first crack at the James Bond screenplay. I mean, they did do, no. they did do World is Not Enough, right? World's Not, World's not Enough, yeah. yeah. They're kind of, they were kind of called on as a bit away, but this that's is right. them on, on their own, you know, and this and is what why they came, came up with. That's that's why, Josh, I find this incredible because this is essentially their resume, right? This is them yeah. interviewing for the, the Bond writers and why after this film critically was received the way it was and all the dogs it took then and now for its screenplay and its crazy town why would in a rebooted world these guys be called on to do it when you know that they've got the pull to get guys like Paul Haggis and people like that involved like I really don't understand why the Bonds like they, they seem to be quite loyal to their screenwriters don't they you think about Maybom before Richard Maybom yeah like, for the I longest just, time man, absolutely I, I just don't I don't know how this film like fair enough if Casino Royale came first and then they did something like this this is a total failure but to start with a failure and then to still retain the job into a reboot I don't get it can you can you shine any light on that yeah that's really interesting because you would think like uh, one, one person I saw online said about how, you know, after Die Another Day, you know, if that, that, that was pretty much Brosnan's Moonraker. 
So you can really kind of see that, you know, what if the Bond films came down to earth after that one, go to a free rise only, right? That was the whole thing yes, behind yeah, free rise right. only. Yeah. I guess they kind of did with Casino Royale, only Brosnan wasn't around for it. Well, that's um, it. Like Brosnan became the fall guy for this film. I mean, from a, from a canonical point of view, not the, screen oh, not the screenwriters. But one of the things that's always frustrated me with these Brosnan films is that perhaps with the slight expect, ex, exception of Goldeneye, I really, really like Pierce Brosnan as Bond. And I think I do. I think he's one of, if not, and I'll put it out there, if not the most consistent in his performances. Like Connery got tired and bored of it towards the end, and you can see it. Oh, Roger I never Moore. Found Brosnan bored. I never I, found no, Brosnan no, bored. No, neither did I. And I'd never have a problem with him as Bond. I believe that he believes it and he's enjoying it. He's having fun with it. But why was he the fall guy? instead of the writers like i just don't understand it is there a familial connection there is there something that that these guys were able to do collaboratively that showed broccoli and wilson that yes i can do this we can change this we can make it better i'm the guy for the reboot or we're the tandem for the reboot have you got any info on that this is my theory and this is i want to i want to go to an anecdote uh, i'm going to bring up an anecdote that i read about um when they were filming um the title sequences for license to kill mm-hmm and Maurice Binder was going to be brought in again to do, as he always did, uh, the Rip, Ripley the, Nipplies, yeah, the Ripley Nipplies, things we talked about earlier. Uh, Barbara Broccoli was actually against uh, Maurice Binder. She wanted someone else to do, you know, to accompany Gladys Knight's, you know, powerhouse of a song, right? Because mm-hmm. um, you know, because Gladys really belts it out in that song, and they, she wanted to do something different, something that would evoke, you know, the type of movie that they're making, and. And Barbara says, you know, we call the vote and we, we think we're going to do something differently. And and uh, I think, you know, this is time for Maurice to step down and we'll get someone else to do it. And we we, we all take a vote on this. And she's referring to her and Michael G. Wilson and everything. So Cubby sits down and he's like, well, it's a good thing this isn't a democracy because Maurice ain't leaving. So... <laughs> So always she's been under the control of her father through the whole situation, even up, to, up until GoldenEye is like afterwards he passed away. And I'm wondering, it's because GoldenEye was was kind of returned to kind of, a, it was still kind of in the, it, it was a cold, it was a post-Cold War bond, but it was still kind of in the same kind of Timothy Dalton style they were, they, were, they were doing. They weren't doing a Roger Moore bond with GoldenEye. They were kind of going back to the more Cold War bond, right? That Dalton kind of brought out. Sure. And... Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, is because of the box office of Tomorrow Never Dies when it came out, because they wanted to make more money than GoldenEye did. They wanted to bring a lot of audiences in there. Like the Asian cinema action movies were really big in the 90s. So they brought in Michelle Yeoh and all that. And they combined that and with the big, big action plot and Roger Spottiswood's direction. They had a really big explosive James Bond film with Tomorrow Never Dies. And that made a lot of money for them. So then Worlds Not Enough came and they just wanted to put more of that into Worlds Not Enough as well. And then again into Die Another Day, more of these big action sequences, Bond basically Arnold Schwarzenegger with two machine guns. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I don't blame Brosnan for this. I think this is a studio decision and this is the studio saying this makes money. Let's do it. Barbara probably Barbara being probably under pressure and, you know, in, in that kind of in that kind of sense um, to make these Bond films work and stuff and keep up her father's legacy you know and i'm not i'm not trying to crap on her or anything like that i'm not trying you know like I, if she was a man i do th- i would say the same thing you know mm-hmm. um i i just personally and maybe michael g wilson was you know too long in the tooth at the time uh to kind of he just kind of went along with it i, I suppose it's hard to say but 
Purvis and Wade doing these films, they were young guys and they were told and they were told to do script rewrites and get all this done and do these put, put these scripts out. So they were doing what they were told. But then when the reboot came along with Casino Royale, after all, I think of the backlash to Die Another Day and bringing Bond back to basics, uh, Purvis and Wade were like, okay, good. We can actually write this now. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, but I don't know why when you're going to go back and strip the paint off of everything and rebuild, why you you hold on to the guys that gave you that type of thing. Like it, there it just there must it have been a, a quick pro quo between Michael G. Wilson, Barbara, and the, and Purvis and Wade. There had to be, mm-hmm. there had to be an original ideal they want to do. In the original like script for uh, Die Another Day, the uh, the character of Miranda Frost was named Gala Brand. And for those who listen to the Moonraker podcast and and also to our uh, through literary gun barrel interpretation of that, uh, Galavrand was the name of the protagonist, female protagonist in Moonraker. Sure was. And uh, and they changed her name in this. So they were going to use kind of the idea of the Moonraker, uh, I guess instead of using a, a, a missile to shoot at uh, London or whatever, they're going to use a super laser to, uh, well, what, what's, 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 what's politics right now? Kim Jong-un, those Koreans, are, North Koreans are pretty crazy. So do, you know, shooting their missiles at Japan and stuff like that. So, you know, let's have the villain be a North Korean um, fanatic who wants to destroy the demilitarized zone and invade South Korea. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a, instead of using a, a Moonraker missile, they use a classic James Bond set, like evil satellite program made of diamonds. Thank you. Made of diamonds, of course. Yep. Just got to get in those nostalgia nods. Absolutely. So, yeah. Now, that's a lot of speculation on my part, but I, I, I think it's a good discussion anyways. But yeah, your, your point about the studio pushing for it, maybe uh, for the profiteering side of things. Yeah, you, you could be on. To something there but i'm sure there are listeners who do know a little bit more about this than us so look guys girls if you got any answers as to how purvis and wade survived this film and the transition into casino royale and how they you know have basically earned their reputation now have after having done that bad film if you know that familial connection or if you know that sort of uh that there's a story of camaraderie or as josh suggests perhaps theorizing that there's a um uh, a quid quo pro there let us know just uh you know get in touch with us on facebook or email us in so that we can fill in the gaps of our own ignorance here absolutely sorry buddy back to you that's this is good nope. though it's good stuff no yeah thanks i appreciate that uh you may have noticed on the production of uh lots of gadgets and other props and other bond films were used uh yeah, these have been one, stored in eon pro- well one or just one or two yeah uh well these were stored in eon production archives and they and so that's how they appeared in Q's warehouse in that London Underground base that they were in. Cool. Like the actual props of the jetpack from Thunderball, uh, Rosa Clips. Do you think that the mums? Do you think the mums and dads that work at the Eon Archives ever kind of like slide a cardboard box back into their the, into the boot of their car on a Friday and take home a jetpack for their kids on the weekend? Uh, who knows? I definitely take one of those breathers, though. And I loved how one of my favorite Bond gadgets is Thunderball breather. I loved how it was used in this movie. However, as I as Jeff pointed out, why did he throw it away? Why didn't he just put it in his pocket? I don't understand why he threw that away. Like, eh, whatever. But I mean, that's Bond with gadgets, right? That's the reason why yeah, he, Hugh exactly. is so frustrated with them. Exactly. He doesn't <laughs> care about any of them, ultimately. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. You get, the, you get the feeling that Craig's Bond cares a bit, but Roger Moore certainly didn't. And Pierce Brosnan, like, in his in his Christmas tree ornamentation of film, like, what the hell is another breather? Just throw it on the ground like a piece of tinsel. Like, there's so much shit in his films that a breather is not even going to hit the register. 
I true. I, I I do love Pierce's though for his reaction to the Aston Martin vanish. Um, even though it's ridiculous to us, I thought he sold it on screen how much he loved that idea. And you know what? In his position, who wouldn't love to see that in front of you? You know what I mean? Like, I think he sold that as an actor. I just don't think the film. I, I just think it's just jarring in the film personally. I think that's. The, I, I, I mean, the Lotus Esprit and Spy Who Loved Me is something else, but I, I, I don't know. I think I go too far with. Uh, the bird of prey, basically the cloaking ice. <laughs> the Klingon bird of prey. Yeah, I'm picturing C- Christopher Plummer shouting <laughs> Shakespeare right now. <laughs> Kirk, <laughs> to be or not to be. Christopher Plummer would have been a good Bond villain. He certainly he s- still can be. He still can be, and an older like an old villain, like an old like a uh, oil company dude or something like that. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, he could be the Monopoly guy. <laughs> Moneybags, Merriweather, whatever his name is. Rich Uncle Pennybags. Rich Uncle Pennybags, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, those guys were pretty cool. Um, another co- nostalgia you'll notice, too. Uh, so, being this is the 20th Eon produced Bond film, a lot, a, lot, a lot of this was done, was filmed, they filmed, I wanted to film in London. The Reform Club was used to shoot several places. This is, includes the lobby and gallery of the Blades Club. Now, as a mm-hmm. Bond fan, this kind of pissed me off a little bit me because too. in the in the novels, Blades is a it's a place where gentlemen play cards. It's it's a, it's a social club. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not a fencing club. <laughs> no. Um, and th- this fencing club, man, like we can talk about the set design later, but this looked more like the Diogenes Club from Sherlock Holmes than, oh, than any of that. Absolutely. Like there's guys sitting Both in, in the sofas as, as they're being even in the modern And even in the modern Sherlock and BBC show, it looked like the yeah. Diogenes Club. Yeah, there's guys sitting yeah. in like, you know, leather sofas reading newspapers as they're being jumped over <laughs> by these two fucking swordsmen. Like it's all kinds of weird shit going on here. Anyway, look, okay, we might as yeah. well I might as well ask you the question now, seeing as you got the cupboard opened and we're talking about this setting. Josh, how did Madonna get involved in this project? They wanted to get a singer and Madonna was I guess still pretty popular back then. Um, and uh, that they got her on the soundtrack, so inevitably it ended up with a uh, guest appearance as well. Yeah, I heard that she was a little bit uh, tried tried to be a bit controlling here, didn't she? About the song and about her, like she she wanted a cameo, and her cameo yes, had she, it, she she did demand a, a a cameo and a speaking part too. Yes, I thought she demanded like a love scene with Bond, and then when it turned out that she wasn't going to be a Bond girl, then she she asked to be made a lesbian or something like that. Is there any truth in this, or is this just all hot air? I I haven't heard that too. To be honest with you, that's really interesting and funny too. Um, I guess maybe by. Uh, Karma came along and gave her the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Supporting Actress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know that's Karma. I think she was playing for that. Possibly. Verity. Oh, God. So then we got to so the cast rounding out, too. So um, so we got Toby Stevens, the, uh, who is, who is I, I think, I've seen him in stuff recently. And he's, he's, he's very good. I, I liked him in Black Sails as Captain Flint. He was really good in that. Um, I haven't seen the Lost in Space show, so the, the the reboot series that was done. So I don't know how good he was in that. I did like him in the first season of the Strike Back series. Now, Strike Back is one of those shows that a lot of people don't know about. It began with these two – it's most popularly known with these two guys uh, as, this, as the main soldiers of the series that you follow through on this almost like HBO meets 24 on crack basically is what Strike Back is. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Scott, but it's basically – no, it's an American soldier and uh, SAS, like a British SAS soldier, teamed up 
and they basically go at this and they would go on like strike missions across the world right and fight baddies like bond meets jack bauer but with like hbo skinamax kind of kind of All stuff right. to it right it's entertaining okay. as hell kind of show but it's also pretty dumb sometimes too but the first season of the show uh had richard armitage as just one as the main character and just one character only on this series. And that was before they decided to spin off and do this whole thing with these two other guys, completely different. Anyways, Richard Armitage one is actually really good. It's a really good spy series, like classic BBC stuff. It's only three episodes long, mm-hmm. but it was good. And Toby Stevens played an American um, liaison between MI5 and the CIA. And he comes in as this over the top, like Southern, like a Southern, uh, with a Southern accent, you know, and, and just saying America is awesome. It was actually hilarious, but he, he did it really well and convincing. So he definitely has his mom's talent for sure. Mm. But um, I just think he was just the wrong casting for this role personally. Um, but we'll go, I guess we'll go into detail on that later on. Uh, then we have at the time she was wasn't really a well known actress. Rosamund Pike cast as Miranda Frost, originally Gala Brand. Um, then we have. Is this not her first actual cinematic role? I think it was like her, yeah, it was her first cinematic role, because I think it was only like a year a year after she did the Pride and Prejudice one with mm-hmm. Kira Knightley, okay. um, which which she was quite good in. Um, and then I think her career went went big from there. But um, yeah, she she did this film. Um, uh, and we got Holly Berry, of course. She was cast as Jinx, an NSA operative. Uh, we have Michael Madsen in the weird role of a NSA director. I, I don't know if you, if you know Michael Madsen's films, which are mostly Tarantino films. The guy plays like either like Stone Cold Psychos or Schlubs. And mm-hmm. I just did not buy him as an NSA head in this movie at all. I feel it's as though he, like he had trouble doing gross, this role. It's a gross parody of an American. And I think he knew that. Yeah, well, maybe that's why it's so it's so sort of off-putting, and and yeah. I also feel as though maybe it's a little overacted, a little bit ham-fisted, because at the time they were considering this spinoff, right, where he where he and Jinx would would have their own yes. sort of show. So maybe that's he's right. like maybe he's really conscious of wanting to make an impression, so that the show has some some anchoring. Yeah, I can see that, and that's why he's a bit over the top, a little more yeah ham-fisted. That would make sense. Him wanting to be more, to have more presence in the yeah, film. Yeah, I think maybe that's it. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. But I'm, I for one, I'm very happy that there's no Jinx spinoff. Yeah, and, I've, and if that was the reason why this film also went a bit over budget and also went on the way around that it did just to reinforce this character. Because mm-hmm. um, I think we had enough of Jinx in the film. I think like characters like uh, Miranda Frost probably suffered in the writing because of them tr- of them possibly trying to force a Jinx movie on here. Well, I think much of the, I think the dialogue, the conversation suffered because they tried to force a Jinx movie in here. Like this is yes. really bad stuff, you know? And yeah, the thing I, I, I'm, I'm going to highlight this now, foreshadow how I feel, but you know, Making her an NSA agent doesn't make any sense to me at all when they've already got the establishment of of uh, Wade's character, right? Yes. Why not Wade? Just, yeah. Why not just make her affiliated with him, and then that way I'm not questioning why an NSA's got a field operative doing all this type of crazy shit out there, you know? I guess they got her just off a of monstrous ball when she won the Academy Award. So I, I think oh yeah, maybe- but her character as an NSA operative, like I don't buy this agent field stuff or field agent stuff. Does the yeah. NSA have field agents? Do they? I don't. Well, 
I've seen it depends, I guess, on on how valid it is. I see like in shows like 24 or whatever, there are NSAs, but they're usually suits. They're usually like bureaucrats. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, I've never I I guess I've just never thought of them as active in this way, which perhaps because they're quite good. It's a national security agency. Right. So I think they would be more concerned on protecting things on a national level. Like I never thought there would be like. Uh, espionage, like, you know, uh, going outside the, co- like, foreign intelligence, you know what well, I mean? That's I thought, right. Like, that's, what, CIA, that's CIA to me. What but is it, the threat to I'm America I'm sure there's here. someone who's read a lot of Tom Clancy or who just knows this stuff mm-hmm. very well. Please write in and let us know. Does the NSA do this kind of stuff? Yeah. Do they do they basically do, like, this Black Widow kind of shit that Jinx does in the movie? Or is this, for example, a, 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 just a kind of, uh, a, a, just something that... Hollywood does wrong, like having heroes in medieval action films uh, wear, not wear helmets because you can't see their face. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And you know what, buddy? Like, I'll put my hand up here. Maybe there is a precedent for this within the NSA and its popularization and media because if they were planning a spinoff series, you'd like to think that they knew a little bit about what they were doing. Like, they would have grounded it in some reality. And if you're going to try to to plant a spin-off series on this character of Jinx, who's a field agent for the NSA, then that's going to become... Like, the, the air is going to come out of that balloon really quickly if you try to sell that as any bit of reality. Absolutely. If it's the not true. That, the one thing I think 24 did really well was they created a fake organization, like yes, CTU, yeah. right? That's right. And they were, so they could dance around that all they wanted to. Totally. They basically, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So that's one thing that they did. And when you, use, when you use real organizations like that, that's a different story you altogether. you got to have your facts in line. Uh, well, you don't have to. Look at these films. But you have to at least – you have to at least pander to some sense of reality. So it will be interesting. Yeah, let us know if you got any intel on that. Yeah. They also filmed in London. They also – I guess part of the Blades Club was also Buckingham Palace, Green Park, and Westminster. Um, Joku Sarlon Iceland was used for the car chase that with the mm-hmm. – with the Aston – they use four Aston Martins and four Jaguars. With the Jaguars, they converted them to a four-wheel drive. They essentially opened up like the the, the engine on the Jaguar, and they pulled like part of the uh, of the engine out to make it a four-wheel drive. And they pushed everything back to the rear of the of the engine block, and they put the, all the weapons in the front. Or so, so that's the only way that they could put the weapons in the front. So they worked that way. You want me to? Do you want me to chip in here about the vehicles? Because I'm quite Please happy do. to do that. Yeah. Please do. Uh, well, as you say, that uh, that Jaguar that's driven by Zhao, the XKR, is a V8, 400 brake horsepower. Man, this thing goes 0 to 60 in 5.3 seconds with a top speed of about 155 miles an hour. Now, as you say, yes, they converted it to a four-wheel drive so that they could get the driving uh, the control on the, on the conditions. But this... This car features twice as much weaponry as Bonds does. Nine, yes. nine high explosive aerial mortars, dual rocket launchers, electronically controlled Gatling gun. And I don't know about you, but when I'm watching this film, I see that Gatling gun. It just looks like it's skimming his head, man. Like, I wouldn't want that thing blowing heat behind me. Oh, I totally. Like, like all the, I, I totally, like all those, those shells bouncing Fuck, off his man. bald head. That'd be a... <laughs> exactly. In the cold, too. Like, it's, yeah. it's really weird. Anyway, we got, uh, what else? We got telescoping steel prongs up front for the battering rams, 18 yeah. unguided front grill missiles, thermal imaging system. Yeah, like for <laughs> for all of those, just... for all those times you need it, right? Like, just imagine yeah. the salesman trying to pitch this one to you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so if you just so happen to be like a private military contractor for a supervillain, mm. this will allow you to spot the the um, the intelligence agencies who have invisible cars. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. so so Tamahori chose this convertible, hey, because the hardtop looked a little bit too similar to Bond's Aston Martin, and he That's says right. this is Tamahori saying now it's it's ludicrous really to have a convertible in Iceland. But he just wanted to do it. And I think that kind of, that's, you could say that for a lot of stuff in this movie, I reckon. But, you know, the story of the Jaguar, of this particular car, is really interesting. So if you'll just indulge for a moment. Relatively young car, you know, 1998, Jaguar was hoping to capitalize on the success of these sports cars that were selling under its name, the XK8. But they wanted to do something similar, but have a little bit more power and better handling, okay? So the body of this vehicle recalls the company's old, old sporting heritage, right? Where you have these lubed bonnets, the rear spoilers, and the kind of mesh bonnet as well. And in 2006, the updated XK, so this one, won all sorts of awards. It was finally crowned just a couple of years after this movie as Car of the Year by Top Gear, okay? Now, for Die Another Day, there were eight of these. Now, you mentioned the Aston Martins, but there were eight XKRs were used. Four Ooh. of them were converted to the four-wheel drive that you mentioned uh, right. to handle the ice, right? And they were fitted with a Ford 5-liter V8 engine. So the engine was changed a little bit for oh, the four-wheel. Yeah. Okay. But, but of course, at this time, Jaguar and Aston Martin were part of the Ford company, right? So the, this is why you got Fords, Jaguars, and um, even the even the old Ford Fairlane and the Ford Thunderbird, which we'll talk about in a couple moments, perhaps, in, the, in Cuba and whatnot. Um, yes. The Ford Ford Motor Company's all over this movie. Oh, uh, sure. I guess because now all the uh, BMW stuff's gone, right? BMW sponsorships totally yeah, out the window. That's right. You yeah. got Aston Martin back, and they got also mm -hmm. the um, uh, and they got the Ford Motor Company on top of that too. Yeah. So we had two other cars. Uh, they were called the Cannon cars, and they were known. Uh, on the set as cannon cars. They were just body shells, essentially, okay? They were fired from, like, uh, like air launchers and whatnot. Yeah, yeah that's right. They yeah. were used for the lightweight explosive stuff. But, you know, yeah. this, this I found this incredible. To achieve the shimmering bodywork of this Jaguar, right? The, this, uh, you know, that green shimmering stuff. That paint was actually mixed with real pure gold at a cost of 2,000 pounds per liter. Okay. Why, why, why do they want to make expensive for like I don't, pure I don't know. gold? Pure gold. That's where the Schumacher comes into me, right? Like that's where I'm thinking Schumacher. But I suppose, but they'd be more like cheap neon. I guess maybe that was the Ice Palace, I suppose, but I, yeah. I don't know. Well, anyway, the hydraulics and compressed <laughs> air handled all of the gadgets on this vehicle, which were actually pretty cool if you think about it. So we they had were. The, the weapons were controlled by a single suitcase that opened up to reveal a radio transmitter and two joysticks plus 28 buttons. So you're actually picturing like, remember Blofeld and For Your Eyes Only flying the fucking helicopter with all these switches and buttons and stuff? <laughs> yes. It, that's kind of what we've got here that's controlling the weaponry on this vehicle during the filming, okay? 28 buttons, two joysticks, and some dude just kind of controlling it. So a stunt driver controlled the vehicle, but the, uh, the special effects operator controlled the gadgets. We had a nitrogen cannon used to blast the engine and gearbox Les Jaguar into the hot spring. You remember the, the place at the end with the boiling water or whatever the fuck it is, like in the biosphere, the Jaguar. Oh, yeah. Right? So that was a nitrogen cannon. And the the special effects guy, Chris Corbold, had this to say. We only had a small hole prepared in the set floor to crash the car through, so we had to be especially accurate with our nitrogen pressures and distances. <laughs> now, during the ice chain, inside the hotel water was a real problem hey eh? because there were liters and liters and liters of water it, it was very down. impressive and, and 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 like it was very realistic and and the scene was actually pretty tense and it was, I gotta admit, yeah, it was pretty good. I, I gotta admit like bond crashing through those through the um 
I, through the ice, you know, through the ice, through the, through the doors and driving all the way up through the, to Jinx's room or whatever, despite, you know, how ridiculous it was in essence, it, it was, it was well filmed. It was um, totally. I agree with you on that one. And the drivers did a really impressive job because they had to you memorize can totally the love route. That scene. They had to memorize the route before they were adding water to it because when the water Is was hitting Rebby the windscreen. Julien's team that was doing the driving as well? I, oh, I was I'm not to, sure about I, that. I was, I was never to, f- to figure that out. Maybe Julien was ret- retired by that point. I, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think he was well passed by this point, but I, we can, I can check into it. Uh, all yeah. I can tell you is that the drivers had to memorize the routes because when the water started crashing down onto the windshields, you couldn't see anything. And it kind of forced them to drive that shot blind, essentially, because particularly for the Jaguar, which is filled up with water, the windscreen would just be flooded, you know? That was interesting. Really, really interesting. So that's that's just a bit of info on on Zhao's Jaguar and Tom Hori likened that sequence. He said he, his his aim was it basically to be like um like a Luftwaffe after an RAF plane. Like he wanted to be like a dogfight almost mm. on the ice. That was his whole vision. And they planned that scene for the longest time. Like the this whole schedule of the production was rearranged around them for the ice to get to the right depth for them to film that scene on the lake. For, for, for the chase on the ice, like they even created a temporary dam, which was constructed at the mouth of the inlet that kept yeah, just to keep out the salt water. And that allowed the lagoon that they were filming it on to freeze completely. Cool. That is um, clever. Yeah. But they had to get it right to that temperature, right? That's the mm-hmm. whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, what, and, about, uh, what, about the, uh, what about the Aston Martin? You want me to say a few things about that? I just think yeah. while, while we're here, I can share this stuff, you know? Yeah, you can throw on the Aston Martin for sure. All right, I well, mean, it, it, it's a classic, and uh, there's got to be a good story behind it. In terms of performance, does it go invisible? Well, you know, that's for me. That's not even the craziest part of this film. But you know, <laughs> the performance of this vehicle is actually a little better than the performance on the other one. We got uh, 480 brake horsepower with a top speed of 190 miles an hour. This is a fast car, and this goes zero to sixty in four seconds. Uh, it's a V12 for one thing, 48 valve, six liter V12 as, a point, as opposed to the 4.2 liter V8. So th- this has got real fucking zip. Uh, th- these are vehicles that aren't made for people like us, obviously. They're, and you know, cause let's face it, if, if we're buying these and driving around our cities or our towns, we're going slow, right? We're, we want to be seen. We want to be known to own these. That That's it. We're not really getting, we're not getting the performance route out of these vehicles at all. <laughs> but these are made for like the Autobahn, you know, you're just taking your vehicle and you're going on the road. That's but, right. Then having said that, anybody wants to send me one, anybody wants to, to donate, I'll, I'll happily have it and drive it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, you yeah. can throw I'll, you can throw one of those in for me. I'll take a Jaguar too. Why the Jag, not? Yeah, you know, I, I do like the look of the Jag in this film. I mean, the, the the Vanquish is a nice vehicle. It's not my favorite of the Aston Martins, but it's a no. beautiful, it's a beautiful car. Anyway, let me tell you a little bit about it. Okay, now this car boasted a computerized electronic system that monitored the car's safety systems. Now, at the time, that was a very this is the Jag very, or this the Aston Martin. This, this the Aston Martin. This okay. was a really big deal at the time. But now, if you think about the way cars are just you plug them in basically to to fix their faults and stuff like cars are all computerized now to within an inch of their life Uh, but to think that at the time the safety safety systems being computerized such 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 a big deal and processes uh two million commands per second so imagine uh the car's computer system processing two million commands per second now now i'm sitting here reading this as just a general guy i'm not sure i properly understand what this means apart from like if something's wrong it's going to tell you really fast because (laughs) a vehicle doesn't need to process that much information per second (laughs) Right? No, it really, really doesn't. It's not like you're trying to, I don't know, hack into the NSA. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it just sounds clever. Like one, you know, the the, it, the car's got paddle shifters, right? So like the like F1 vehicles, you use you change your gears on the paddle on the um, 
the, the steering column. And those one-style paddle shifters change gears in 250 milliseconds. Again, do I need it that fast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Unveiled in the 2001 Geneva Motor Show, this was billed as the most technologically advanced Aston Martin ever. The V12 was the first model to be fully developed under the Ford Motor Company, which took over Aston Martin in 1987. Oh, and, and, okay. So, so Ford goes with Aston Martin goes with Ford. Okay, yeah, that oh, makes yeah. sense time. In, in terms of the licensing of the vehicles. Yeah. Well, in terms of style, the sleek curves on the bonnet of this vehicle echo the, the Mark III from 1957. Now, I have seen that. I'm sure you see that as well. And it looks similar. The wide mouth grille of this car looks similar to the original DB5. For the film, it was sprayed in silver birch in honor of 007's original DB5. So hmm. I don't know if you noticed the similar similarity in the colors there, but Lee Tamahori wanted to revive the Bond connection to Aston Martin, particularly for this, the 40th anniversary. He says, quote, people salivate over this car. I wanted to acknowledge this great era of handmade British cars. So he said. There were okay. seven supplied for the film, four were modified for stunts, and three were hero cars, so-called for their close-ups, driven by Brosnan. He was really impressed. Brosnan said, by God, it's such an amazing car. <laughs> that's <what he> now, <laughs> that just sounds like, a, uh, just sounds like a, an air quote to me, but... Uh, yes. There were about 300 of these produced a year, and they retailed for 250,000 brand new. But in case you're wondering, uh, you can go and buy a 2002 Vanquish, just like the one in the film, with limited miles and weaponry, of course, for somewhere in the vicinity of 100 to 160,000. <laughs> wow. So there you go, some info on a, uh, the, the two vehicles. I didn't get quite into the, the rocket car there. Um, what but, was the name of, of like the, I, I know what that rocket car was a nod to. It was a nod to that car from the 1970s. I think the Campbell car, the one that went on the, on the uh, Utah flats or whatever on the, on the salt flats in Utah. Oh yeah. Do you remember, was it the blue flame? I think it was called. I, I don't remember the name of it. Yeah. It was weird that, the, I mean, the inclusion of that in the film was weird and I'm sorry, I don't have that info to hand. But. I guess they were trying to stress Graves being like this, this inventor, eccentric, uh, playboy, just Richard Branson. I, I, like, I don't know what they were doing with this character in that, in that fashion, but, uh, that was weird. And it led to terrible CGI that we saw oh. with the waves and the glacier. Like <laughs> that was definitely an example of early CGI from the two thousands that does not hold up well today for sure. You know, it, uh, is. it didn't held up well back then. But that's right. Know? There was better CGI in Titanic. Oh, a hundred percent. So because that's because they're able to kind of do it in a way and film it in a way that makes it look real and not trying to focus on, on doing too much. You, you just you just work with what you have, right? And what and what Cameron did with Titanic at the time was groundbreaking as well. It was. I mean, it, yeah. it was. They were still on an evolutionary path, right? Even now, like if you look at um, just, just around the time that Diary of Another Day came out, that was also from 2001 to 2005 or five or four. That was uh, the era of the Lord of the Rings. And if you look at today at the Lord of the Rings films, the CGI on that is really good still today because they use models. They use mm -hmm. miniatures for mm -hmm. those movies. But then you go watch those Hobbit films, for example, and then they're just full of CGI. And it's like they don't look good. It doesn't look good at all. You know what I mean? Like it's, you can totally tell the difference between practical effects and uh, I guess di di digital effects if it's not used right. Now, example of really good uh, practical effects uh, that this movie still had to me, uh, Chris Corbell did a great job with explosions and incendiaries in this movie. The filming of that whole sequence, uh, which the documentary captures of in the, in the opening sequence when that big explosion 
goes off after like after uh, Moon destroys the hover the helicopter and then Bond detonates you know the Bond the, the little explosive in the in the briefcase with the diamonds and all that and there all the chaos going on and things exploding and all the gas veins going off that explosion was very well choreographed and put together and that was a real explosion that wasn't CGI. Okay, yeah, well, you yeah, can tell, that, can't you? That's Chris Corbold, right? And yeah. I think it's just, it's just like, I guess he's like the heir. He's the heir, obviously. He's the successor to, um, well, what's your uh, John Steers, right? Mm-hmm. And you know how John Steers loved his explosions from before, oh, yes. before too. <laughs> the the thunderball NASA wind uh, window breaking um, explosion. The disco volante eruptus. Disco, yeah, dis- disco volante eruptus, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, so they filmed that. Um, in Iceland, but they also filmed it in Svalbard, Norway, uh, which is part of the national park there. REF, Little Risington, Gloucestershire, Manson Airport. Um, uh, sorry, uh, Gloucestershire. All of that was where they, they they filmed various locations where they, I guess, like, conveniently they could do the ice chase just to match up with what they were filming. Even though I found in the final product, the editing kind of didn't have that uh, – I don't know. It didn't have that effortless feel that I think that they were trying to go for in, in the chase. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a John Frankenheimer chase, I guess you could say, or a uh, William or a William Friedkin chase. Um, Madison Airport in Kent. That's where we the Antonov cargo plane scenes were, were filmed. Wow. You see, that surprises yeah. me because I thought that entire thing looked like it came out of a Super Nintendo game. <laughs> it totally did. God. Like, it, it, that was a big plane. Like that's that was that like a North Korean model cargo plane? Like I don't know what that was, but that was something else. I mean, it's like a whole city there and stuff. I mean, you have enough room to have a, a like a fencing like a fencing training room as well on board. Just just nuts. Very I don't nuts. think Air Force dojo. One is that. Yeah, a dojo on board, various different levels and all this kind of stuff with those kind of cool World War II style bomber windows. You know what I mean? It, 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 those like kind of like those big. Uh, octagonal windows that kind of wrap around, you know, that make like there's more glass than there's steel on that plane. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? <laughs> but it can survive the Icarus blast. Oh yes, absolutely. Yay, yay, yay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So that's pretty much um, the, the, the the production of Die Another Day. It was it was like all over the place like that. Um, now it was yeah. yeah. It, well, you know. It, it, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, though, uh, and just to continue, um, so we mentioned David Arnold. He did the, the, the soundtrack again to Die Another Day. And I think since Sworn Never Dies, he gets progressively worse in, in, in his film scoring. He just goes more and more techno. I think that's just his thing. That's just what he likes, right? But uh, still a little better than Eric Seurat. But uh, there's a theme um, – he included two new themes that he created for the world is not enough. Um, and he entered, and then he introduced them in this movie. Uh, the first was, there was Renard's theme and it's heard during the mammoth Antonov cue on the recording mm-hmm. and was written for a piano originally. Oh, the wow. other theme, uh, Christmas for Turkey, Christmas in Turkey from world is not enough is used is reused and going down together. So he actually reused his own music on here. And that just kind of just shows to me this, this was just like, they weren't really concerned about, the finer things with this Bond film. They just wanted to do a nostalgia orgasm with like, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, and make it just like some, like a, like a Michael Bay action film. You know what I mean? Like they were just, uh, yeah. 
Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. You know, since first listening to the Die Another Day soundtrack, I, I've kind of got a bit more time for it now. It, it is not one of Arnold's best, no, but I do sort of have respect for, you know, when he did I take like over the, with I like Tomorrow Never Dies. Well, yeah, but when he did take over with Tomorrow Never Dies, as you're rightly saying, he did establish a sound for the Brosnan films, which was based on this sort of electronic involvement and with a bit more techno beat, a bit more kind of. Electroberry. Electro. Well. Electroberry, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if that is a term, but I'm quite happy to credit you with it, unless you read it somewhere. It, I it take kind credit of, for that portmanteau. It is kind of like Electroberry, and I think that there's a respect there because when he when the series is rebooted and we get Quantum and we get uh, Casino Royale, particularly, there is a much more classic orchestral return. So it's not like Arnold can't do it and doesn't do it. It's just for this film, I think he had the. He understood what he was dealing with. He was dealing with, he was dealing with a fairground and an explosive, crazy, dizzy ride, and that's kind of what he he did. So reusing some of his cues, I don't think anybody would have even noticed, you know, if we didn't read the production yeah. notes or listen for it ourselves. But this is an okay soundtrack. It services a crazy film in loud and abrasive ways, and that's kind of, you know, okay. you know that that's how I look at it. But you know, just so it was very workman for this movie. For uh, yeah, this movie. I think so. I don't think he would he would say there's anything really beautiful or majestic about it. If if Arnold goes on and there's no reason to think he won't and continues with a really really great career in writing for for film and television, if he's doing one of these retrospective David Arnold nights, I don't think this will be a score he taps into. Yeah, to share he's themes. capable of good music. Like I think oh, his, he is, his yeah. music for Kingsman is really good. I love his Sherlock, uh, his his Sherlock theme. Uh, that's one of the best things that he's written, in my opinion. Well, the Good Omen stuff that he's doing now is quite nice as well. Okay. Yeah, oh yeah, good, really... good Good Omen. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, anyway, uh, nevertheless. Um, you know, before we leave the production, and I know this has been a long Cubby's Corner because we've talked about cars as well as other things. I've got a little bit more information here on, on well, on a couple of different vehicles that are in the film. But you see, a lot was made at the time and a lot is made of Jinx's character, I guess. Maybe they were trying to introduce this. Even though it's only in one and a half scenes, we get this look at her coral pink Ford Thunderbird. You remember when she drives up to the Ice Palace? That's what she hops out of. Yes. You remember that? Okay, good. I, well, I, and also the th also the Thunderbird that Bond drives in Havana as well. No, that is a Ford Fairlane, and I'll oh, say something about that in a moment. I, I suck at my cars. Sorry, guys. That's all right. It's okay. Well, I, I, I'm not a hell of a lot better, but the Thunderbird that I've got information on here, you know, this 2002 model was modeled after the 1955 original. Now, the coral paint is similar to the sunset coral that was offered in the original T-Bird. And the T-Bird, of course, was a very, very popular car for Ford in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. It was a really, really big seller, one of the most popular and affordable vehicles as well. But I'll tell you, you know, after filming, Halle Berry was offered this car, but she turned it down. Instead, she chose to get a black one. So there are some of these still available, wow. e even though even though Ford, after this film, canceled the car in 2005. So basically, it was named Motor Trend Car of the Year in 2002, the, the revamped Ford Thunderbird. It had been away for a while. It was taken off the line in 1997 completely, but executives wanted to bring it back four or five years after. Because, you know, at the turn of the millennium, there was a growing market for kind of retro-styled cars. If you remember, the Volkswagen Beetle came back. BMW's yes. Mini Cooper came back. Mini and, Cooper, yeah. And, and the PT Cruiser, too. You know, the Chrysler Cruiser. That's right. you remember that one. So the, the Ford then thought after a five-year break, let's try to bring it back. And so they brought it back. And this was kind of its premiere, if you think of it in a way. Um, 
although they canceled it again three years after because Ford's expectations for the sales outstripped its actual marketing expertise in the luxury sector and they couldn't keep it going. So it's quite an interesting story here. But in the 50s and 60s, Thunderbirds were all over the place, right? And, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting to think that well, the 700 special edition Thunderbirds were released for this film, complete with 007 badges decorated to the floor mats. <laughs> and they cost about 43000 That's about 60000 in today's money. Okay, 60,000 pounds. So close enough to $100,000 if you're going to buy in Canadian funds. Or maybe not that much now because the pound is sinking. Uh, let's say 80000 maybe, I guess. But yeah, so this, this Ford Thunderbird of Jinxes, it has all kinds of big deal was made for basically a single appearance in the movie and yeah the, the film didn't do much to keep this line of car going because it, it didn't last two or three years later but the one you were talking about buddy the uh the one that bond drives to the fair lane yeah the ford fair lane now the ford fair lane was a really popular vehicle as well not as popular perhaps as the thunderbird but still really popular. It was built off the, uh, this was a 1957 model. Uh, it was the Sunliner model. And of course- It would have to be before the revolution, be, be, be yeah, before Castro right. took over, right? That explains why it's still there. Yeah, the US trade embargo of 1963 made it so that no new cars or spare parts were allowed into Cuba. And that's why a lot of the vehicles that from the 50s and pre-1963 are still still driven there, right? Even today, you'll still see these cars that yes. kept up. Um, it's a 4.5-liter uh, V8, top speed of 96 miles an hour. Unlike the other two cars that we... Well, the three, really, because the Thunderbird that Jinx drives goes 0 to 60 in 7 seconds. Uh, unlike those three, though, this one's a little slower. Uh, 0 to 60 in 15 seconds with 175 brake horsepower. Only a three-speed, so I'm not uh, an expert on all that. But here's a question for you, my friend. This is not the first time that a Ford Fairlane is in the James Bond films. Can you tell me... Either A, which film featured a Ford Fairlane, or B, which character drove one? Uh, Felix Slater in Goldfinger? Nope. Good guess, though. Count Lippe drove a black Fairline <gasps> oh, Skyliner. Oh, right. And then Fiona Volpe blasted it off the road. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. On her uh, – that was a – was it Kawasaki? No, it was a um, – I'm not actually sure what it was. I can find yeah. out, but uh, it's one. They, it was one they obviously prop outfitted with like the rocket launcher, right? That's right. Yeah. But so the there RPG. you go. Yeah. Anyway, look, I understand listening to that. A lot of it is just kind of me retelling facts, but this was a big deal. Like these cars were a big deal for the production of the film, and I, I feel it much better to fit this stuff in here now before we close Cubby's corner than yeah. you know cram it up later. Uh, Scott uh, uh, and and to a small extent myself, we really like the um, reproductions of the Bond cars that are available as collector's items. Yeah, and cool. uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of them. So if you're ever interested in getting like copies of these cars that they use in all the Bond films, honestly, like name a Bond, name a vehicle in a James Bond film yeah, and there will it. be there, there and there will be part of that collection. Yeah. It comes with it comes with a really big uh, info book on like the vehicle itself and the film it took place in, uh, which are really great collector things. That's the main reason why Scott got them. But, you know, the added bonus is kind of like the, uh, the snow it's almost like it's not a snow globe but it's basically like uh, a plastic world of the of that of, of the of, uh, with the model of the car kind of trapped inside it with the background uh mat and everything so it, it was really interesting that's yeah, pretty it is pretty cool stuff and, and, I mean, uh, and geeky as fuck but i mean still uh, great it's, fun. yeah of yeah. course it's geeky as fuck but yeah. the i have uh, two of them i have the uh scott sent me them actually uh one is the um moon buggy from diamonds are forever yeah, I, which, just, which, I, I couldn't hold on to that one, man. I just couldn't. 
I understand, but I I, I really enjoy it. I, I I like tacky stuff like that. Not tacky, but <laughs> because this was made very well. But it's I, made I just wonderfully. Know. Yeah, it's just it's that, a great yeah. visual joke. It's a great visual joke and conversation piece. Um, and then of course I have the um, uh, I forgot the name of the, of the vehicle, but it's the um, from from a, from a view to a kill the, the convertible the tech cabbie that, that he steals from the cabbie. Yeah, it's like the Renault Eleven or something, isn't it? The Renault Eleven. Yeah, exactly. Renault. That's right. Yeah. Well, these, I mean, we are, I'm not a serious collector in any of this stuff. And I mean, the line of, the line of manufactured bond cars that you're, you're citing, the ones that come with the booklets and all that stuff. Yeah, that's really great. And some of the information I shared with you came from those books, actually. But, but the, um, I mean, you can go back, obviously, to the the days of Goldfinger and, and, when the Corgi were putting out these die-cast vehicles, you know, you can get the DB5 from the 60s. And I mean, th- this stuff is is out there far and long before this series of uh, miniatures came out. But this is a particularly interesting one because it comes with so much of the official production information too. So it's quite helpful when you go to have chats about cars to have some detail on it. And yeah, like you say, uh, it's nice to have the little models themselves, geeky as they might be. And you know what? You play your cards right or just don't do anything. You may be receiving more of them as... Uh, as the need for space in my house uh, tends to grow with uh, two growing children, uh, I, I have less and less space to to showcase collection. So yeah, just uh, yeah, watch watch your mailbox. <laughs> Very good. No, we want to mention. I want to mention too. In in the, if you remember near the end of the sequence when of uh, the film, sorry, when Bond and Jinx. Um, infiltrate uh, the North Korean air base where they sneak onto the Antonov belonging to Graves. Uh, they ride something they ride something that looks like a drone, which is actually it's called a switchblade. Uh, and it's it's a workable model that was that was created uh, fast. That's P H A S S T, which is okay. programmable high altitude single soldier transport. Mm-hmm. Um, these things did exist at some point and Tamahori was really into the idea of using them. Brief but realistic. Good guys get in unobserved thanks to a fast cruise, good glide performance, and a minimal radar signature. It's a wonderful promotion for the fast. That's the Aerospace Inc.'s lead designer, Jack McCormick. Um, How much do these things cost per unit? Or is it like a military sector thing that you can't really figure that out? I think it's a military sector thing. I don't have any prices about that, unfortunately. Um, Just to go back also to David Arnold and move on to uh, Madonna. So the title song for Die Another Day was co-written and co-produced by Mirwa Amazadai. Amamadze, sorry. And performed by Madonna, obviously. Um, As we know, we talked about her having a cameo as a fencing instructor. Um, and the title sequence is supposed to show the 14 months of torture at the hands of the North Koreans. I give this movie this kudos. The title sequence I found really a cool idea and an original idea of being part of the narrative. I thought that was really neat. At one point, too, at the opening uh, of the film, sorry, at the opening premiere of the movie, uh, this was one of the, uh, it was attended by uh, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. So I'm really curious to see what Liz and Philip thought of this movie. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever really get that. I, I don't think they sat through it. Uh-huh. Maybe maybe they'll talk about it on The Crown. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. In season 14 or whenever, whenever they get to that point. <laughs> whenever they get, yeah. Season 18, yeah. They'll get to 2002. And <laughs> let me tell you, that would be a boring season. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. That was 2002. Uh, yeah, really, because that's after Die has passed away, right? Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. It's not until when William and Harry grew up that it starts getting interesting again. Well, some would say you know you got Harry's whole uh, Nazi phase and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, th- these are just interesting episodes. These are not interesting seasons. 
no <laughs> do you know what i mean like like that yeah. time like, like that time that uh, you and i had a fight over marvel cards on the highway that's an interesting episode but our lives aren't really that interesting no true 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 and i'm i'm not one who believes that the monarchy is really that much different than us i think they have no. bigger houses and and nicer lives for from a luxury point of view but i don't think that they really have more interesting things going on no, uh, they're more of, for me, they're more of an interest, interesting in the sense of the history that they're connected to. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. But, you know, you want interesting lives. Like, let me see Richard Burton and Liz Taylor on the yacht with their Panthers, you know, or they like that's the type of shit that's interesting <laughs> to me. Awesome. I did not know that they had Panthers and that's, that's even more wonderful. <laughs> well, I, I don't actually think the Panthers were theirs. If I remember Burton's diaries correctly, I think. You get that, along well with Mike Tyson and his tiger, I guess. I think, I think the Panthers were like friends that had just kind of left the cats on the boats or something. I can't remember, but. Burton, Burton writes wonderfully about it, as you can imagine. I bet, I bet he told Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole about that over a drunken uh, drunken night. Oh, do you know what? It might have been Rex Harrison's Panthers. Did Rex? No, he doesn't strike me. As, yeah, I think it might have been. He seems like a flamboyant kind of guy to me. I don't know. We've got to figure this out. That's important. And there are Bond connections. There must be Bond connections to Burton. I always wish that he could have been a good Bond villain, hey? He could have been a cool Bond villain. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, I mean, James Mason was was supposed to have been that's right. uh, dress. Yes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, on those notes, then uh, let's let's see what the critics thought of Die Another Day before we get into a plot summary and a discussion of the movie. That was a good Cubby's Corner. Fulsome for our fans. Yes. Fulsome for our fans. We hope you enjoyed. Okay, so it's time to have a look at what the critics thought then of Die Another Day. Uh, you know, Josh, you already mentioned the budget. We got a little different figures on that, as we said. Yeah, what was that about? Well, I think it may be just an inflation thing. I've got $187.3 million. Uh, box office worldwide pulled in 569 which brings us to a return on investment of about 204%. 21st most lucrative in the series. So that is pretty shit hot. It does make a lot of money, but... It didn't make as much money as some of the other ones. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 57% fresh with critics, 41% with audiences. Hmm. Second film in a row now where we've had a, a difference. Moonraker was a difference and Die Another Day, big difference between critics and audience. Not maybe, maybe negligible difference. So the first review I got to share today is from Namrati Yoshi writing an Outlook magazine. This is a uh, Asian continent magazine. I quite liked her, her take on this. Viewing the 20th Bond is like eating from a platter spilling over with an assortment of dishes, but in the insipid hodgepodge, not even one taste manages to linger on. The latest Bond director is Lee Tamahori, for whom a Bond film is, quote, an impregnable fortress of filmmaking, end quote. He may have made that crucial, flamboyant inroad into Hollywood, but it also marks an unavoidable break from his far more original and powerful Maori family saga, Once Were Warriors, which you were speaking about earlier, Josh. According to Tamahori, a Bond film used to be about girls, gadgets, and a good-looking spy, and then it changed shape. Now it's about girls, gadgets, a good-looking spy, and big action. Well, that's precisely the problem. There's too much of the big action. Our good old Bond saved South Korea and the world from being taken over by the maniacal North Korean Colonel Moon, who, when not gritting his teeth, undergoes gene replacement therapy to metamorphose into an even more fiendish Gustav Graves. There are all the trademark exotic locales. We rush from Korea to Cuba to England to Iceland and back to Korea. High-tech weapons and gadgetry, an invisible Aston Martin. Glittering conflict diamonds and gorgeous girls. 
But before you notice them, far too many minefields explode, impossible stunts get more incredible by the nanosecond, and the outrageous chases move from hovercrafts to modified cars on snow, waves, and in the air. There's been more to Bond than the digitized technology-bending adventures. Sadly, the infamous witticisms and one-liners get so rare, some silly jokes about Fidel Castrota, Big Bang Theory, the double O in 007, and sex for dinner, death for breakfast don't suffice, that they are in danger of going extinct by the time the 21st Bond rolls out. 007 doesn't get enough time to be suave and smooth either. In fact, for a while, he sports long hair and a beard, looking like some actor auditioning for the role of Jesus. <laughs> it's the babe with I, an... I, I had another literary character in mind. It's the babe for an attitude. It's the babe with an attitude. American agent Jinx, played by Halle Berry, who not only makes for a magnificent view, but packs in some style, the length and depth of her role notwithstanding. In a blink-and-you-miss-me role, Madonna says, I've come undone. That, too, in her deadpan worst. And her Bond song is definitely nothing to sing about. <laughs> the worst of Bond's problem is that he's running out of sinister enemies since communism got marginalized. Here, the Harvard-educated Moon, who majored in, quote, Western hypocrisy, does show some promise, but it wears off rather quickly. Forget getting exhilarated. Die Another Day is a frantic roller coaster ride from which you emerge exhausted with a massive blur in the head. If the axonization of Bond is imminent, give me XXX any day. Ooh. So that's what they were comparing it to. Maybe that's what they were trying to... Because that movie was so popular at the time when it came out that maybe they were just trying to do that, make Bond kind of go for the triple X crowd. Hmm. Maybe so. Well, Josh, you mentioned Roger Ebert, a friend of the show friend of everybody's show probably there's few who won't know roger ebert and we try to draw on him when we can here much like we did when we were looking at down the literary gun barrel with our friend um oh help me out here who's our our guy used to write for the oh New um, York. boucher boucher yeah, boucher 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 yeah boucher, <laughs> boucher yeah. yeah the one who hated ian fleming or yeah. was secretly jealous of him. That's right. Well, Namrata Yoshi in Outlook magazine didn't think much of the film. Roger Ebert for the Chicago Sun-Times, the 22nd of November, 2002. I realized with a smile 15 minutes into the new Bond movie that I had unconsciously accepted Pierce Brosnan as Bond without thinking about Sean Connery, Roger Moore, or anyone else. He's become the landlord, not the tenant. Handsome, if a little weary, the edges of an Irish accent curling around the edges of the Queen's English, he plays a preposterous character but does not seem preposterous playing him. Die Another Day is the 20th Bond film in 40 years, not counting Casino Royale. Midway through it, Bond's boss, M, tells him, while you were away, the world changed. She refers to the months that he spent imprisoned in the hands of North Korean torturers, but she might also be referring to the world of Bondian thrillers. This movie has the usual impossible stunts as when Bond surfs down the face of a glacier being melted by a laser beam from space. <laughs> Sorry, I look, I tried to read the sentence. I tried. I just couldn't get to it. I, I understand. But it has just as many scenes that are lean and tough enough to fit with any modern action movie. It also has a heroine who benefits from 40 years of progress in the way we view women. When Halle Berry as Jinx first appears in the movie, there is a deliberate and loving tribute to the first Bond girl, Ursula Andress, in Dr. No. In both movies, the woman, emerge, the woman emerges from the surf wearing a bikini, which, in slow motion, seems to be playing catch-up. <laughs> I like that. Even the wide belt is the same, but Jinx is a new kind of Bond girl. She still likes naughty double entendres. Bond says, my friends call me James Bond, and she replies, well, that's a mouthful. But in Die Another Day, her character is not simply decoration or reward, but a competent and deadly agent who turns the movie into, almost at times, a buddy picture. 
The film opens with an unusual touch. The villains are not fantastical fictions, but real. The North Koreans have, for the time being, joined the Nazis as reliable villains, and Bond infiltrates in order to, I don't know, deal with some African conflict diamonds, if I hear it correctly. But I wasn't listening carefully, because the diamonds are only a MacGuffin. They do, however, decorate the memorable cheekbones of one of the villains, Zhao, played by Rick Yoon, who seems, Rick to, Yoon, yeah. who seems to have skidded face down through a field of them at high impact. A chase scene involving hover tanks in a minefield is somewhat clumsy, the hover tank not being the most graceful of vehicles. And then Bond is captured. I believe, didn't Pierce Brosnan describe it as trying to drive a bar of soap? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, then Bond is captured and tortured for months. He's freed in a prisoner exchange, only to find that M, Judy Dench, suspects him of having been brainwashed. Is he another Manchurian candidate? Eventually, he proves himself, and after a visit to Q, John Cleese, for a new supply of gadgets, including an invisible car... He's back into action in the usual series of sensational stunt sequences. Now, for the first time in the Bond series, a computer-generated sequence joins the traditional use of stuntmen and trick photography. A disintegrating plane in a closing scene is pretty clearly all made of ones and zeros. <laughs> but by then, we've seen too many amazing sights to quibble. Why hasn't this crashed yet? <laughs> the North Koreans are allied with Gustav Graves, played by Toby Stevens, a standard-issue, world-dominating Bond villain whose orbiting space mirror is not exactly original. What is original is his decision to house his operation in a vast ice building in Iceland. Since his mirror operates to focus heat on Earth, this seems like asking for trouble, and indeed, before long, the ice palace is melting down, and Jinx is trapped in a locked room with the water level rising toward the ceiling. Exactly why the room itself doesn't melt is a question countless readers will no doubt answer for me. Other characters include the deadly Miranda Frost, played by Rosamund Pike, whose name is a hint as to what side she's on, and Damien Falco, played by Michael Madsen, whose name unites two villainous movie dynasties and leaves me looking forward to Freddie Lecter. Oh, and Miss Moneypenny, played by Samantha Bond, who seems to have been overlooked, makes a last-minute appearance and virtually seduces Bond. Not so the rest of the cast. Toby Stevens, sneering along as millionaire megalomaniac Gustav Graves, looks as if he's doing a bad impression of Rick Mayall's Alan Bastard, while Rick Yoon, as his sidekick, does an original version of Marilyn Manson, only not as funny. Neither of them has much presence, as the script gives them very little to help in the one-liner department. Madonna, in a cameo as fencing instructor, tries flirting with James. I've been known to keep my tip up, he smirks and makes it about as expressive as an I-speak-your-weight machine. <laughs> Rosamund Pike, playing MI6 agent Miranda Frost, initially promises a streak of feminine feistiness in her resistance to Bond's seductive wiles. I know your type, 007, she says. It's sex for dinner and death for breakfast. But it doesn't take long before Frost, too, is thine between the sheets of his bed. Tamahori maintains a brisk pace as the set pieces swing from Cuba to London to Iceland, though the flurry may not prevent you from glancing at your watch. After all, when you've seen one master plan for global domination, you've seen the lot. This time, the danger lies in an enormous laser called Icarus, which can replicate the power of the sun. If the device should fall into the wrong hands, well, you can imagine the mayhem, perhaps more convincingly than the filmmakers can. Some of the computerized stunts look very tinny indeed. The spectacle of 007 racing across an ice field with a laser beam in atomically hot pursuit would be unnerving if it only looked like human beings were in some way involved in this. <laughs> As for the breakneck chase around Gustav's ice palace, the suspension of my disbelief had already gone twang once James climbed into his invisible car. Yes, that's right. A gadget that blows the picture's entire plausibility budget in a stroke. An invisible car. Honestly, the thing some people will do to avoid a, to avoid a parking ticket. <laughs> Strange it is not how the, how the regular bombardment of thrills can have quite the opposite effect of the one intended. To put it another way, there's nothing more boring than somebody trying to excite you the whole time. 
Tamahori delivers pretty much what most of the recent Bonds have delivered, a highly competent, thoroughly impersonal action spectacular that hardly allows the audience to pause for breath before changing on to the next big splash. I say hardly. There is one scene in Havana about 40 minutes in when James, needing a car at short notice, bursts into the local hotel room of a South African thug, punches his lights out and swipes his keys. Lounging on the bed, calmly take Taking in his transaction is the thug's girl. Bond, spotting her, murmurs, Buenos dias. Hola, she replies nonchalantly. It's a, tiny, <laughs> it's a tiny moment, but I prize its casual expression of civility more dearly than anything else in the film. It's a one time when spontaneity, however illusory, breaks from the mechanical more bangs for your buck principle that drives along the franchise. James Bond will return, announces the end title. Of course he will. As surely as we'll be raising our hopes when number 21 comes around a weary Bond fan, but still a loyal Bond fan in his own yeah. way. Weary, um, but I think you're right. Weary, weary, but loyal. I think that sums that up nicely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, what, what's interesting, um, yeah, he mentions the whole scene about in Havana with like that, uh, with like Krug, that's the, that's the name of the character, the uh, the South African guy. Um, the the girl, that whole sequence, we put him in the wheelchair. That's something you could, you could see out of Connery. And that part of the movie kind of felt before the reveal of the DNA parlor, that is, uh, that felt the most like a James Bond movie for me. Um, to be honest, I don't have issue much with the first 30 minutes of the movie. And uh, I think that's kind of when it starts going downhill is after those moments get taken out and replaced by these huge CGI set pieces. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Because uh-huh. even the original opening, se- even the opening sequence did not rely entirely on CGI. Like they use a lot of practical effects in the opening sequence, mm-hmm. getting actual surfers to do that surfing sequence, uh, creating actual explosions. And those hover and those hovercrafts were actually there, too. So, ah, uh, oh, wait a minute. Do you know what I've just realized? Sorry, guys. That? I just really screwed something up. I really screwed something up. I read you. I actually read you the first half of Roger Ebert's review and the second half of Anthony Quinn's review from The Independent. Oh, okay. Roger Moore, Roger Moore, Roger Ebert finished off. I'm sorry for that, folks. That's a total mess up. Uh, Roger Ebert's review ended positively. He enjoyed the film. Okay. He says that, uh, and so it goes, bond after bond as the most durable in the series of movie history heads for the half century. There's no reason to believe this franchise will ever die. I suppose that's a blessing. Okay, and then the next, and then after that is the uh, yeah yeah Quit Quinn or whatever his name was. Yeah, he doesn't like it so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he doesn't like it so much. Uh, so I think he gave it like uh, one star, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I kind of butchered up our section there, but you know what? I feel like the point is the points were taken, weren't they? Yes, you kept your tip up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> Now, regarding public perception, I mean, this is kind of what happened afterwards. Uh, should we talk about Lee Tamahori? Yeah, if you want to, let's do it. But let's not spend too much time talking about Tamahori. We're here talking about his film. And, you know, he'd made some illegal. Is that is that the right thing to say? Well, yes, yeah. He, yeah, he was basically uh, acting um, in an act of prostitution um, that, with an undercover police officer and was... Uh, <laughs> reprimanded for that now, when, uh, when when did george michael get nailed for this because you know what oh, i think there, there was a trend of this because this was in 2006 when when this happened yeah. uh, tamahori was was dressed as a woman um 
and he was arrested in Los Angeles for offering undercover poli- uh, undercover cop uh, oral sex. Um, he was only convicted of criminal trespass, and he pleaded no contest in exchange for other charges being dropped. So uh, I, I might have probably hurt his career in a big, big way, and he probably regrets it in his life. But he did release a movie called Mahana in 2015. It was his first feature made in New Zealand since Once Were Warriors. So it looks like he went back home. Mm. Um, and, and, and rural set drama based on the novel Bulabasha by Witi Amahera. And also had Tamara, Mo- uh, his w- Warriors veteran, um, Jane Fett there, uh, Tamara Morrison. Okay, right. So, and, and it w- yeah, a little speed bump along the road of uh, personal indiscretion. Yeah, kind of like a Hugh Grant kind of situation, I guess. Well, I'm glad that people are making the the making more of the indiscretion than the choice to to dress up, you know, uh, or to to cross dress or or to yeah. whatever. Because that's I mean, I'm glad I'm glad that that's the story, and it's not uh, you know some gender bashing. No, exactly it. No, it was because, you know, it was uh, it, it was offering a yeah, like it was offering sex. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, though, is that it doesn't matter about prostitution. Like it, it was, he was, it was just an undercover police officer. So maybe for some reason they thought maybe that's what he was doing because he was dressed as a woman and he wasn't. And maybe that's where and that's where that the charges weren't as bad as they were is because it was, maybe it was proven that it wasn't prostitution. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah, maybe there was actually like an attempt here to just. Yeah, I mean, you're not necessarily prostituting yourself when you offer someone oral sex. Yeah, exactly. You're not a prostitute when you just say, hey, look, uh, I fancy you. Let's get dirty, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, another film that he did uh, that's that worth a notice, notice too, is uh, he did one of the um, Alex uh, – is it Alex Jones? I can't remember the name of the character, but it's a character that um, – Morgan Freeman has played him once. Uh, anyways, Along Came a Spider is the movie that that, okay. that, that he did. And uh, it's James Patterson. It's a James Patterson story, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, that's the one with... Um, uh, I always get Ashley Judd. Up. Ashley Judd, yeah, that's right. Ashley yeah. Judd. Yeah, That's a good movie, yeah. if I recall. Is that not a good movie? Well, that, that, yeah, that was Along Came a Spider. And mm-hmm. there, was another, there was another one be, be, uh, be before that as well. It was the same character. Um, oh, okay. And Morgan Freeman played the exact same character in it because he's like a detective that James Patterson uses all the time. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, there's another one that he did uh, of note uh, called The Devil's Double. And this has starred Dominic Cooper, um, uh, who is best known for the the series Preacher and playing uh, Howard Stark in the uh, the Marvel films. the Devil's Double was about uh, a dramatization of Latif Yahya's uh, claim that he was forced to become a bi-double for Saddam Hussein. Hmm. And basically, Cooper played like uh, a, like a Saddam Hussein's body double. It was, it was, very, it was a very interesting movie. Hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. in terms of his career and directing, um, it sounds to me like the success he made in New Zealand is responsible for his critical acclaim and yeah. perhaps perhaps his footstool into Hollywood action. Uh, yeah. came came that way as well, you know, but yeah, uh, and hey. his breakthrough wasn't uh, after once for worries uh, the edge wasn't like his American breakthrough. Um, it was Mulholland Falls, uh, which oh, was yeah. like a yeah, yeah, Mulholland Falls I think with Nick Nolte was in that and Jennifer Connolly, I believe, uh, yeah. a whole bunch of other people. Uh, then the edge came, then die another day. and then uh, he also did that movie next with Nicolas Cage based off a <laughs> the Golden Man with oh, by right. Philip K. Dick. Nicholas yeah. Cage and Jessica Biel. 
I got a soft spot for Nick Cage. I, you know, I understand the, the humor. I really do. But it doesn't make his films any less entertaining for me. I, I, I like a Nicholas. Cage I won an Oscar film. for Leaving Las Vegas, man. He is a good actor, but he just mm-hmm. chooses mm-hmm. to he just chooses what he wants to do now. And yeah, and he likes working. I mean, I think he likes having his name assigned to just lots of movies, and he does lots yeah. of movies, and he plays very similar roles. But you know, it's true. Like you, like Christopher you ha- Walken. Yeah, in a sense. Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the guy has won an Oscar. You're right. Leaving Las Vegas is a great movie. And, you know, one of my favorite movies uh, also involving Las, Le- Las Vegas is uh, Honeymoon in Vegas. I love oh, him right. in that. That's right. Nicolas Cage is in that too. And James Caan, yeah. you know, I mean, he plays the love interest who has to chase Raising after. Arizona too. Yes, that's right. And he's in Wild at Heart with Laura Dern. His early, his early catalog of performance is quite good. Oh, yeah, for sure. Anyway, look, we've spent a lot of time on Tamil Hori. Uh, yeah. An interesting guy, you know, he was the right guy for this film, I suppose, if, as you're suspecting, the studio wanted to continue or perhaps to exaggerate hyperbolically yeah. this big blow action stuff. He's the guy to go for here. I recommend watching the documentary that would for Die Another Day because yeah, it's will. really I good. Will. It's really good. It puts you in into this into the, into the studios inside Pinewood Studios and you see how they work and it's really good. And Tom Ahorian, it's he's a force of nature. Like you, you, you really get into what he was trying to do with the movie. And ultimately, I don't think what they wanted to do or what they were telling us about uh, it's almost like if they're they're making a totally different movie uh Mm. but that's my opinion all right well on that note then bfg it's time to give us the plot summary and lead us into our discussion here of Mm -hmm. uh, of the film Mm -hmm. i feel like we've we've done a lot of talk a lot of preamble and we're getting now down to the nitty-gritty so take it away plot summary please So let me get this straight. Bond and a few other MI6 agents emerge from the depths of the sea, riding a giant tidal wave to North Korea, where they use their surfboards as a transmitter to override a North Korean transponder system in order to convince a diamond smuggler's helicopter pilot to land somewhere nearby, which is then overtaken and Bond impersonates said smuggler. Okay, I think I get it. Even after the part where some renegade millennial North Korean colonel wants to sell Bond, the arms dealer, beefed up mini uh, hovercrafts to fly (laughs) over the the mined out demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Uh oh, the colonel's badass intelligence officer, I am Zhao, he says, like a Star Wars villain, uh, gets a text from Chekhov's inside man, question mark, (laughs) man, that Bond is Bond. Colonel Moon, as he is called, demonstrates a new rocket launcher-like weapon by taking out Bond's helicopter along with his team of operatives. Bond's cover blown. He can only trigger a fail-safe explosion on the case of diamonds, which detonates and causes complete chaos. Things start exploding real good, and the colonel's pretty boy intelligence honcho gets a zirconium facial, allowing Bond to hijack one of the hovercrafts and chases after the fleeing Colonel Moon. Apparently, Moon's general of a dad won't approve of this behavior. I don't approve of terrible green screen, a decent fight, followed by a crash that seemingly kills Moon with Bond hanging from a gong. The gong show continues, however, in Bond's case as he is captured by Moon's father, and like all spies, says nothing. So now we get Madonna's go at a Bond song accompanied by abstract visuals of Bond being tortured. Why do we have to get tortured as well? A year later, the torturer's got nothing from Bond because he's soon taken out of whatever hole in the ground he was in. He's rocking an overgrown Chateau d'If beard when we see him get swapped for a now bald with diamond acne Zhao. 
prisoner transfer. Zhao is terroristing in China somewhere and people die, but that but they want to know who's the man inside who betrayed Bond and his team before that awful Madonna song. And how did Michael Madsen become head of the NSA? Should he be sucking down a big slurp obnoxiously before cutting someone's ear off? It's clear M doesn't want to be stuck in the middle of this situation. And it... <laughs> NSA chief Falco, yes, that's his name. He might as well have Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. attached to it, thinks his prisoner exchange is just pour oil on the fire. General Moon mourns his son and blames his corruption on Western society. Right, because North Korea is a paragon of virtue. <laughs> glass houses, general. Speaking of glass, Bond is soon dr- drugged up with a needle ambush by his Confederates and whisked off to a facility that I am sure is a nod to the Queen Elizabeth II from Man with the Golden Gun. Once Judy Dench does her M thing for a few moments, telling Bond he's useless and piss on his hurt feelings, she feels Bond is throwing at her. She, she kind of lets him escape from custody, allowing him the leeway to jump ship in Hong Kong Harbor. We know it's Hong Kong Harbor, Harbor because when he arrives on land, after I imagine a tiresome swim, the sign, the sign on the wall implicitly states <laughs> Hong Kong Yacht Club. That's like a 60s Batman episode. <laughs> oh, well, Joel Schumacher is a good reference then. Mm-hmm. Um or even we go further back to Joel Schumacher, we're going to Adam West Batman <laughs> comparisons. So, well, even with the Edmund Dante's beard, I'm giving you a second hint that at the, at, at the literally illusion people, very soon Bond will be making a Monte, be smoking a Monte Cristo in Cuba. But first, there's this whole ordeal with a convenient, near, convenient nearby hotel who allow Bond a room based on credit, definitely not by his looks. Well, this makes sense when they try to set him up with a massage sex tape that ultimately fails because plot and the concierge Chang is revealed to be a Chinese intelligence. Bond lets Chang know that Zhao did the bombing in his homeland and that he has escaped MI6. Chang is more than happy to hire out Bond as a hitman, retribution for his countrymen. They give him passports, money, and a gun. But the important part of all this is Bond shaved his beard. Music takes us to Cuba where Chang has informed Bond that Zhao was sighted heading there. A few visual tropes of Cuba later, Bond is taken to Raul, a cigar factory owner and MI6 sleeper agent. Raul has tracked Zhao to the island of Los Organos, where a DNA beauty parlor exists. So this brings Bond to a resort overlooking the island fortress where the clinic is located. Bond is out on the patio watching an obvious gangster being obnoxious with his mates and probably prostitutes. But he is soon distracted by the arrival of Jinx. I don't care about the real name. They gave her to justify her name. A beautiful, we see learn, NSA operative who plagiarizes Ursula Andrus with considerable aplomb, I must add. Bond offers his mojito and suddenly they're making bad jokes about birds and then having sex. Natural progression, right? Always. Is this first? Is it the first time we actually see Bond having sex, by the way? I mean, he's in mid-thrust here. Uh, usually there's kind of like fade to black kind of moments, you know what I mean? Or or post-coital moments, but I, I don't know. Like, Is this the first time that we actually see Bond having sex? Like in it the is, actual yeah. Act? It is, you know and I mean? you know, and I get, I get the both sides of this. I mean, I feel more strongly that this is more of a detraction, but I understand they're trying to show he hasn't had sex in fourteen months. Plus, they've got this huge A-list actress at, or actor that they want to, they want to play him off. I get, I get all of that. Let's let's have yeah, a yeah. let's have a sex scene because we've never done that. But here's my problem with it, you know. And I, I know what we're in your plot summary, and we can talk about this with the story. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you asked a question, so it's on my mind. You know, yes. I feel like Bond has magic penis right his magic penis is not to be seen it's not to be understood it's just to be told it's just it's, it's mythical right i mean what he does to women he, they, they fall at his feet whatever he does between the sheets is remarkable i'm watching pierce Brosnan have sex and i'm thinking yeah that's a, a good looking man having sex like i can do that i can do that you know, like I, I can have sex the same way he can like that's not james bond magic like i gotta know 
Like, it, 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 it humanizes him. And the, that's the okay. The gods are bleeding. The gods are bleeding. That's right. That's right. Like, I got no problem with them wanting to humanize Bond for the sake of, look, you know, like, let's just show how much he's missed sex, right? That's fine. But if you're going to go there, you have to realize that by making Bond a human sexually, which is an enormous strip away of the guy's character, right? Like everything he's been built on is his uh, his magnetism. I, I don't think even Craig was has been no. shown that way either. No, he hasn't. And th- this is one of the things like, if you're going to do that, do it in a film that doesn't make him fucking Captain America and Spider-Man and Superman. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, they, it's, it's really weird tonally that they give you this personal... Or Roger you know, Moore. Or human... Yeah, or Roger Moore. Human sex scene where you see him just as a man having good sex with a woman yeah. as opposed to... Or, sorry, you, you see that sex in a film that is so hyperbolic in everything else. Like, if... I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but it took it away from me. I gotcha. The the mythos of the James Bond character, part of its part of its hold is, you know, what magic he holds over women. This is just Bond being shown having sex, and it looks like two human beings having sex. There's no magic about it. There's 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 lust and there's sexual attraction and all the rest of it, but there's no magic here. It's just two attractive people having sex. Yes. And and I feel like that kind of I don't know, man. Like, do you see where I'm going with this? Am I, I see making... where you're going. I saw where you're going with it. Yeah, I, I, I made the comment. I made the, I made the, the, the question to provoke this kind of discussion. So, mm, well, it, it does mission sort of, accomplished. It, it, yeah, I mean, it provoked, it provoked it for sure. But I, I have a problem with that atmospherically because you get this really human intimacy in this moment of a Bond just otherwise being fucking like Superman, right? Like flying yes. and surfing and doing all sorts of nonsense. It just I don't get it. Like, are you showing me James Bond, the comic book action hero, or are you showing me James Bond, the the sensitive man who's missed making love to women for 14 months? Because yeah, the Fleming we, Bond. Yeah, because we don't get any Fleming Bond in here. It's you're choosing now to show me this. It's it just seems really off kilter, off tone with the rest of the film. Yeah. Good point. Anyway, good point. Yeah. Sorry. Back to your plot summary. What do you think, folks? Let us know. Uh, was this kind of raw sex scene? I guess taken also because uh, Halle Berry, you know, she won the Oscar for Monsters Ball, and that's has a notorious sex scene in there as well. And uh, maybe they, they thought they wanted to kind of build upon that kind of thing for the audiences, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really hard to say. It could also just be a, a change in um, how we look at actors in movies around that time too, where we're seeing a lot more stuff. We're getting into the HBO era of premium TV and stuff like that, where they're showing more things like that. You know, we're only a couple of years from Rome and a couple more years before that, before Game of Thrones, where, you know, boobs and dragons, right? So, I mean, we're we're at a point here, I think, maybe in the 2000s, where this kind of stuff was just starting to happen. And then maybe the bonds were just catching on to it at that time. And is this a Tamahori thing as well? Like, now, I mean, sex sex is never far behind or beneath the curtain of any one of us, right? I mean, let's be honest, humans are sexual beings. But at the same time, knowing what Tamahori got himself embroiled in with that indiscretion later, is he a guy that just holds sex a little bit closer and a little bit more upfront than some other directors and he wanted to go there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. Yeah, all good questions. Anyway. Anyways, back to uh, Die Another Day here. so Jinx is already gone by morning. Bond sees her hop a ferry across to the island. Bond then enters the room of the obnoxious Afrikaner gangster, decks him out cold to his girlfriend, or whatever uh, she may be, is indifference, as he drags the gangster out of the room and flops him on a wheelchair. The security guards on the quay let him board the ferry with the patient in the wheelchair because it's a Bond movie. 
On Loris, on Los Organos, we find Jinx being interviewed by the men by the men uh, the Mangelic Doctor Alvarez, who wants to use the bone marrow of orphans runaways to be injected into her own bones so that she can completely change her identity. F this guy. She does. She doesn't though. Instead, much better, kills him. Bond has relieved himself of the gangster and finds the entrance to the beauty parlor where he sees Zhao strapped up on some surgical table with wires going into him and a weird mask that's vintage Star Trek TNG medbay Dr. Crusher approved <laughs> covering Zhao's face. Bond grabs the IV and tortures Zhao for information, but Zhao resists and Bond can only snag the metal vial around Zhao's neck as he escapes. Dr. Alvarez's office explodes. Jinx is there running after Zhao while Bond MacGyver's a fire extinguisher through the wall. Zhao escapes via helicopter pad and Jinx is pursued by security forces, but then gets a lame camera angle dive off the cliff to a speedboat waiting hundreds of feet below. Back at Raoul's, the diamonds found in Zhao's necklace vial hint at conflict diamonds, but with one snag, the monogram GG on their surface. Gustav Graves, the young diamond mogul, owns these diamonds. Ooh. Weirdly, after Roger Moore's daughter serves Bond a martini in first class and reads up, he reads up on Graves via, mag, via the magazine, we get Joe Strummer crooning to London Calling. Because we're in London. Or is London Calling to Bond? A hole in the movie seems to start with the villain revealed halfway as Gustav Graves, who behaves like William or Harry on a bender, or if you prefer, Trump as an Englishman in a young person's <laughs> body. Pretty far-fetched, right? Wait till you get to the real explanation. Bond enters Blades, the fencing club, Graves attending, and let's call her Madonna, gives us an exposition dump on Graves and his beautiful young assistant, Miranda Frost. Maybe Purvis and Wade read Claremont's X-Men because there's a Miss Frost and a fight in a place that looks a lot like the Hellfire Club. The Madonna talk leads to an introduction to Graves, and the jousting dick measuring contest escalates from rapiers to cutlasses to outright medieval broadswords until Miranda puts a stop to it all. After muttering white people, a dreadlocked valet gives Bond a message from M, a key. No, it's not an invite to one of those parties, but access to an unused subway tunnel beneath Vauxhall Bridge. M and Bond kind of make up, and we get John Cleese trying to replace Desmond Llewellyn, only not. But there's an Aston Martin vanish. Get it? Visual joke. So the vision is clear. The mission is clear. We have a villain. Take down Gustav Graves. I mean, investigate him first, and then harass him and poke him as buttons until he reveals his villainy. Standard 007 fare. Oh, and by the way, Graves' assistant is Miranda Frost. To show he was a good sportsman after sword fight, Graves offered Bond an invitation to his unveiling at his ice palace in Iceland. Yes, he has an ice palace. And Miranda is an MI6 agent. Who would have thunk it? So that's where Bond is now. At the ice palace, he runs into Jinx again. Miranda is now in the mix as well, and everyone is making lame jokes. Jinx appears to sneak into Graves' diamond mine, which is a geodesic dome next to his ice palace which resembles a Joel Schumacher Batman set and not a Kenny Adam joint. Anyway, Jinx is caught. There's an act- there's a guy actually named Mr. Kill, who Bond has to pretend to make out with Miranda Frost so he's not noticed. Zhao shows up in a black cloak and, and hood. Apparently, he's Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Zirconium, <laughs> Darth Jaguar. And we learn that the DNA clinic has transformed the supposedly dead Colonel Moon into Gustav Graves. Yes, he changed race, people. Told you it was far-fetched. Meanwhile, Miranda and Bond have sex, so it looks like they are actually having sex and not sneaking around. Bond then leaves to find Jinx and saves her from Mr. Kill, but not as not us from a terrible Goldfinger laser homage. We then see a live presentation of Graves' super satellite weapon made from diamonds called Icarus. Ooh, literary illusions. I like it. It's basically a Death Star laser that Graves controls via power glove. Bond goes to confront Graves, catching on, catching on that he's Moon, but not catching on that Miranda Frost was a traitor the whole time. Turns out Freeman, her rival in the Sydney Olympics with steroid use, allowed her to win the golden fencing. And she's a traitor. Kind of like Tanya Hardy, but much, much worse. 
Bond is too busy to embrace his inner Kerrigan, though, because he uses the sonic ring that Q gave him and breaks the glass in the ceiling and escapes in Graves' rocket car. Breaks glass and ceiling, glass ceiling. That makes a kind of political gender joke there. I don't know. What happens is terrible CGI, but Bond does evade the super laser bearing down on him that is melting all the ice. After witnessing the giant tidal wave of ice water and Bond parasailing to safety, but not the enemy's notice, the bad guys begin to pack up for the final phase of the operation. The super laser via power glove activates the super satellite and the Death Star beam fires down upon the ice palace. Jinx awakes in her ice hotel room only. It's starting to melt and flood. Bond tries to sneak away and is vanished. Oh, yeah, his invisible car. But not. But a snowmobiling body notices it and crashes right into it. He tears off. Luckily, Zhao's custom Jaguar has prepared for this instance and uses infrared detection to track down Bond and uses the onboard weaponry to disable the, well, let's call it what it is, the cloaking device. Like a bird of prey, Zhao's Jaguar pursues Bond's vanish across the frozen lake while the laser has started to collapse the hotel and Jinx is now almost submerged. After a merry chase, Bond uses his ejector seat in a cool way to dodge a missile from Zhao and makes straight for the hotel doors, crashes through it, and tricks Zhao to track crash into the flooded lobby below. A ice chandelier is nudged with a few well-placed rounds from Bond's Walther and impales Zhao, allowing Bond to crash through the hotel room door and catch drinks on the windshield in the flower in the flood that occurs. He brings her back to life with a quick bath in a convenient Icelandic hot spring. So what about the rest of the story? MI-16 is up with NSA. Bond and Jinx ride drones and parachute into North Korea, where Graves' super airliner has landed. There's a coup of the North Korean government. Where's Kim Jong-il? Bond and Jinx assassins have a chance to kill Graves, but miss it. Really? Sanders' of disapproving ghost raises his pouty head. <laughs> they manage to sneak aboard, though, and all while Moon Graves kills his dad with forced lightning because he's Emperor Palpatine. Jinx hijacks a plane but is forced to fight Miranda via sword fight and is soon silenced by some sharp words from Sun Tzu. Bond shoots the plane windows. The plane depressurizes everyone in the main cabin, but Bond and Graves are sucked out. The two duke it out, but Graves' parachute gets caught, and Bond uses the convenient button on Graves' power suit that electrocutes the wearer for some reason. And the ambitious colonel, who only wanted to use a super laser to eradicate the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, gets sucked into a jet engine. <laughs> Boom, bam, everyone is dying. The plane is crashing. Bond is sad about Miranda for some reason, not fleshed out in the script, and Bond and Jinx ride a helicopter out to Cargo Bay before the plane crashes and take said helicopter to an undisclosed location where they Scrooge McDuck into a pile of diamonds. <laughs> okay, not Scrooge McDuck, but you know what I mean. Oh, and Moneypenny has sex with Bond, only it's fantasy. Like this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was keeping it together there until, uh, until you mentioned the helicopter. You know, it's funny... I was watching this, and of all the things in the film that bothered me, I think this probably bothered me the most, this whole starting the helicopter in free fall. And it bothered me so much that I actually went out and looked it up. Like, is it possible to do this? And the reason I looked this up is because there is actually, through lights and mirrors, there is precedent for invisibility and cloaking in technology and science, okay? There is. And they yes. at, at least a script... And, and, they, and they do say that That's in the movie. Right. Like, exactly. Yes. The script does try to at least gesture towards the plausibility of this very implausible thing. And I appreciated that that sliver of maybe, okay? But here... It's kind of like Moonraker in that way, that sliver of maybe. The sliver of maybe, yes. But you see here, right, we've got this thing on... Um, with with this, this fucking helicopter. Now, I, I don't know... Maybe you're going to name them all out for us, but this this to me feels like the part in The Living Daylights, right? That they wanted to get in there. Something dropping out of the back of the cargo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The cargo plane. Yeah. Right. Not jet airliner, I was thinking, but yeah, the the, uh, the cargo plane. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Okay. So I, w I was looking at this and I was just like, okay, is it even possible to do this, right? Is it possible to, 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 to start this? And 
I've discovered, um, I consulted a few forums and uh, one of the forums, airliners.net, was like, there was this question, a very similar question was posted and it was responded to by uh, ex-Air Force people, uh, two pilots, current pilots, and a couple of just aviation enthusiasts, okay? And they've got into real technical detail that I can't pretend to understand fully. But what I did do, and I certainly am not going to repeat here, but what I did do was kind of summarize the points. <clears throat> and through these aviation forums that I've consulted about, you know, can you start a, a helicopter in free fall, I can confirm that it is overwhelmingly unlikely that this is possible in any way, okay? Okay. That was the one thing I was kind of wondering, but I just like, what's the point? You know, just just go with it. Just go with it at, at yeah. this point. I also well, like how the, the cars are perfectly intact after falling so yeah, far and they like land in the middle of a rice paddy or whatever. Like, yeah, they fall like thousands of feet and they land hood first and they stick up like uh, like one of Mishka's knives in his circus board. <laughs> nice. It's really silly, but you know what I might do for the show notes? Maybe I'll share some of that forum chat because, like I said, I was overwhelmed by the technicalities of the discussion. Really impressive stuff for those of you who are sort of aeronautical nuts. Uh, You'll know more about it than I will, but I just had to get some info on it because I just couldn't believe it. And so I think what I'll do is share some of the the forum information in the show notes so you can go check those out. Uh, But the forums I consulted, to begin with at least, were from airliners.net. And uh, yeah, go, go ahead and check it out. But yeah, overwhelmingly, no, this is not a possible thing to do, even if... Because and it gets into the detail. Like I think you got to have the ground to give you that lift, right? You got to be on a solid surface for it to get, to get that lift. You know what I mean? Well, I mean that that, that could indeed be, very well be part of it. But you know, most what I learned, I found was quite interesting, is that most vehicles like this, when they're when they're transported, are transported without any fuel in them whatsoever. Like you would never transport a helicopter like this fully fueled, because it's uh, just it's a huge risk, right? It's a huge yes. explosion. It's you know. And, and so there's all these sort of interesting things that I'd never even thought about from a practical point of view that would have negated the possibility of this. But, um, yeah, and they go into, you know, the physics of it all. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but entirely impossible. <laughs> so good work there, buddy, on your, uh, your plot summary for Die Another Day. That was, that was fun. Good fun. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I, was, uh, I wasn't really going for a full lengthy one there because I just I was going to get just fine just want to hit the right notes on it you know and I think you did that perfectly so with that said let's start our our, uh, I'd like to say deconstruction but the film does a good job of deconstructing itself let's just uh, start our chat shall we yeah oh by the way um now, I consider you one of my listeners, of course, because you're right there listening to me. Did you get the literary references I was making um, about like the, Ch- the Chateau Deef beard and all and all that? I'm just, I'm just curious as like a English teacher. Did you get the links, the, the, the notes I was making? Uh, I got the Chateau Deef beard. But that would, of course, be in uh, Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. And then, of course, I even mentioned Ben Dantes. And then I then mm-hmm. I said he's going to be smoking a Monte Cristo later. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> OK, uh, yeah. but, but I was I was trying to make sure if you, if you got that or not. I did, and I appreciated it all, of course. Great book, by the way, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. If you haven't read it, it's, it's one of the best books ever, ever made, in my, ever written, in my opinion. Well, that's, that's a high compliment indeed from you, sir. I, I think it's the best of Dumas in, in, in that particular way. And he's wrote some good books, but I, I think it's, it's my favorite of his. Well, there you go. If you come out of this episode with nothing else, you've got the BFG's recommendation to go away and read that book. There you go. Don't don't search out the source material for Die Another Day because there isn't any properly. This came out of the 
coffee sessions of uh, our friends Purvis and Wade. Yeah, you could go read Moonraker, but we kind of rep- you know you go listen to our uh, podcast on Literary Gun Barrel for uh, Moonraker because mm-hmm. um, at least Galabrand appears in some sense, even though she ends up being a traitor. But anyways. Anyways, indeed. Uh, Josh, let, let's start a conversation here about the film by me asking you this. Did you make a note of or a list of or could we maybe together go through all of the Bond films and touch on all of the different references? Because apparently all 20 or sorry, previous 19 films are, are referenced here. OK, well, off the top of my head. Um, We've got the obvious bikini exit the water, Dr. No. Yes, right? that, that's fine. Doc- Dr. No, that's right. Let's try okay. to go through the films in order so that I keep them straight in my head. OK, because I'm, okay. I'm going to tick them off as okay. we go. So Dr. Okay. No covered. Dr. No is covered. That's From Russia right. with Love, we got Rosa Klebb's shoe. Yeah, the briefcase. And the briefcase. Okay, now I've got no idea. Which, which is very subtle. It's very easy to miss the briefcase because he's kind of just playing with it. It's mm-hmm. off the side and the blade pop, the, the dagger pops out. That's right. But can I ask you this? Why does Bond smell the shoe? That's very weird to me. Like what? Maybe, uh, I don't know. Why does he put it to his nose? And then I started to think like, do humans do shit like this? Do I walk around smelling things that I pick up? I don't think I do. <laughs> Just a stage action, I guess, or, or I guess if you want to call, use that term, stage action. Well, was, it, uh, was they, that a directed point? Like, I'm just wondering, did Tamahori say, right now, Pierce, pick this up, pick this up and put it towards your nose? Like, I don't know what Tamahori's into, man. Maybe he likes, <laughs> like, I think, maybe I he think, likes Rosa Klebb. I don't know. Well, like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I don't know. I'm just asking. I'm asking you. Okay, so we've got, we got the first two. Dr. No, we got from Russia with love. Goldfinger, what do we got here? Oh, the uh, Mr. Kill laser sequence. Of course we do. Do you know what else we've got, too, in the story? Now, I mean, this isn't just a Goldfinger thing. We see it in Octopussy as well. But Bond using the diamonds like he does the gold bar, you know, he just sort of bluffs it out, reveals it. He lets the villain know this is, you know, me on your trail type thing, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, classic Goldfinger, which was when uh, kind of villain antagonism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was kind of that more made almost drove to the ground, drove into the ground (laughs) in most cases. (laughs) It did. Um, uh, so Thund- Thunderball, we got the mouth breather and we've got the jetpack, obviously, reference there in the Q's thing. What do we got from You Only Live Twice? You Only Live Twice. I'm, I was expecting little Nelly to show up somewhere in this film. Is little Nelly in here that I've just missed it? No, you you definitely did not miss little Nelly. That would have made anything a little bit a little bit better. Um, I'm trying to think for You Only Live Twice what references would be in here. Are there any kind of Japanese references that we're thinking of? Or? Well, well You Only Live, like Little Nelly wasn't hanging from the ceiling in Q's uh, workshop or anything. Mm. That's what I'm wondering. You know, like, have I missed just something that's in the background of one of these scenes? I don't know. Maybe just the big sets and the over the mm. top. Yeah, like perhaps that's the nod to You Only Live Twice. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. If you folks had, if you folks listening can think of any nods to You Only Live Twice and uh, Die Another Day, let us know. Well, let's hold that request till we get through all of them because I'm sure it won't be the only one we miss. Uh, what about Honor Majesties? Hmm. Like, I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to play an impossible game. Apparently, there are references to every one of the films in here. I see. Like this is this isn't me going on some sort of a fan hunt. Like I think yeah. there's, there's there's truth to on this. her on her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, <sighs> honestly, uh, I I can't think of a sequence from on her Majesty's Secret Service in this film. Or a, a gadget or something. Another Goldfinger reference would be the ejector seat as well. I was mm-hmm. thinking that now uh, on the ice chase. You know when Bond uses it when he's flipped over to basically. Um, Flip his car over. I, th- I thought that was a kind of a cool use of the ejector seat. Which is an entirely ridiculous proposition as well. But moving beyond the physics of that. Yeah. What about Live and Let Die? The Magnum that was in the... Uh, was the Magnum that was there? In the, 
it was, it was kind of revolver of some kind, wasn't it? The one that Shane gave him. Oh, yes, you're right. Yes, okay. Perhaps you're correct. Good man. Because he only has that gun because he was using it like at the Los Organos. That's right. Okay. Beauty uh, parlor. Diamonds are forever. Well, the diamond satellite, right? The diamond satellite yeah. and the diamonds. Uh, what about uh, Man with the Golden Gun? Is there a Solex agitator anywhere? Well, a giant Solex agitator. What, what, <laughs> basically a giant version of that laser that like uh, that powered, true, yeah. that the Solex agitator was powered by. Right. So we've got the solar energy. That's cool. What about uh, The Spy Who Loved Me? Have we got any um, microfilm in here or any underwater vehicles? No, but they kind of went all out with the car, I suppose. That's a comparison. I guess so, yeah. There's no ski chase scenes per se. Oh wait, yes there is. The spy who loved me. The uh, the the parachute is there, isn't there? Oh yeah. The the Union Jack parachute. That's right. When Graves jumps from the uh, plane in in London, that's right. right. Okay, cool. So we got that one covered. Uh, what's next? Moonraker. Anything you remember from there? This must be really boring listening, particularly to those of you who know the answers to these questions. <laughs> Moonraker. Ah. Uh... Perhaps you should just, from this point on, just mention it. <laughs> okay, mention the ones them. that we can think of, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right, go ahead then. What else do we got? We got Octopussy Alligator. I saw him. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the Alligator and Octopussy. That's right. Um, due to a kill. There's no horses going around, are there? There's no... Uh... Is there an axe used in the movie at any point? <laughs> Jesus, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel now. <laughs> I guess Jinx's dive off the cliff kind of reminded me of Mayday jumping from the... Eiffel Tower. Okay, do you know what? We're, I'm going to give you that one because that is a good. That that's a good one. Uh, that is terrible. Isn't that a terrible piece of CGI though? Yeah. Is this? And another shot too is when Bond is zooming away on the rocket uh, car, and then they kind of do that. They kind of zoom right into like uh, Graves and Miranda there and stuff, and it's just like, why bother doing that? Like, did you think that was cool? Like. Mm -hmm. what, I, the Matrix is a great science fiction movie, but it was also the cause of a lot of bullshit like that, in my opinion. Mm. Bullet time and, and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> like, like let's make it 3D, but it's not 3D. You know, those weird angles. That's what they try to do with, with Jinx's sequence. Totally. There's also a way, I think, to kind of make it look like Holly Berry actually did that dive off that cliff. Uh, we've got the Ferrari, don't we, that he's selling at the beginning. The red Ferrari is like the GoldenEye Ferrari that uh, Xenia uh, okay. does. Yeah, that's right. We've got um, the... I guess you got Zhao as kind of like a standard kind of like Bond henchman with like a deformity or some kind of thing on his metal in his face, I suppose. <laughs> Is that Jaws then? Is that him? I guess, I guess that's Jaws, yeah. Right. Uh, we Jaws have... had more personality though. He Oh, he certainly did, yeah. What do we got from License to Kill? Now, we haven't watched that movie in ages, so I don't know. I really don't know. Anyway, yeah. Let us know. Let us know. You want to email in and we'll... Uh... Let, let us know where the other references are. We're not going to go through all of them, uh, but we've gone through a lot of them, and I think it's just sucking up time here that we could spend <laughs> talking about yeah. other things. I'd also say, like, the Antonov um, aircraft uh, is a nod to, like, the Hercules in uh, Living Daylights. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we've got 10 at least, don't we? I mean, just from our chat here, we've got about 10 of them, so... Let's talk. Uh, let's talk story, buddy. Uh, we don't have to do our money pennies now. I mean, Jeff's not with us. We got his writing here. I'll, I'll share Jeff's opinion in just a wee while. But uh, let, let's talk story. We can start from the top, or we can just pick at pieces we want to go at. I'll start from the top and say that um, I was initially um, intrigued, and I was when I first saw this film, and even when I watched it again, I kind of liked how they were going with Bond as a prisoner of war. Yeah, possibly me too. Yeah. Possibly exploring the PTSD. Mm -hmm. I did like I did like the sequence in Hong Kong with Chang, and even the bit leading to 
Cuba. But to me, it's like it's around Cuba. That's when the movie kind of falls apart for me story wise. And it becomes like a succession of set pieces. Um, and and again, it's, oh, it's just some guy wants to use a super laser. <laughs> OK, mm-hmm. great. I do like the idea that the villain, though, wanted to essentially bring North Korea to conquer South Korea uh, by using the, the Icarus to do that. And I found that very interesting. I found um, it interesting. But at the same time, given the power which with, with which this thing is. Why, given, why just South Korea? Yeah, why just exactly. South Korea? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I don't understand why he limits himself to that sort of very myopic control when he could do something, you know, really quite threatening. I also love the idea of this satellite in like like in space uh, with like this fiery like this basically almost if like uh, this Judgment Day where like the archangels coming down with a fiery sword in the Garden of Eden from the sky, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you and you have like Russia and China, like not having any say in what's going on there. I think they'd be pretty pissed off. if It was just the UK and the US dealing with that <laughs> situation on their own. Like that would just been like, uh, what's going on or Japan even <laughs> God's sake. So I could just imagine like, it'd be almost like Godzilla is attacking or something in Japan. <laughs> you know how close Korea is to Japan and you know, you know, the animosity between those two nations. Uh-huh, of course. Yeah. And it just kind of brought more and more of the ridiculousness of that whole idea, to be honest with you. Well, to bring it back to the the start here, uh, you mentioned it. <laughs> you mentioned it. I like the opening titles here. I like the way that they're used narratively. I think that's cool. Like, I do not yes. understand. I don't understand the CGI scorpions. I've thought about it. I'm I'm trying to think of it symbolically. Even well, if were, it, if it was were, an instrument of torture. Torturing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, fine. I get that. But why so many? Oh. Uh. I just because uh, that's what the, the CGI b- budget allowed. They just like copied the same like <laughs> the same gif, <laughs> the same gif all over and over again. I just replayed it from different angles. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, why have three scorpions when you can have eighteen? Right. Exactly. Right. Okay. But I, I, you know, I do credit Kleinman's. I don't know if it was his decision or the filmmakers or what, but I liked it. I, I liked that they played a different. That uh, they they actually had a function here. That was some, that was kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. It kind of it was kind of like almost a bit uh, prescient, I think, to like the Craig uh, open title sequences, which to me so far have been actually very spectacular. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you think of the movies, the opening sequence, the song titles, the title sequences have been very strong for the Craig era. Yeah, yeah, they've been pretty good. Very imaginative and mm-hmm. psychological and very interesting. It's not it's not your typical thing that you see in old Bond films, like naked girl silhouettes cavorting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this then, buddy, moving ahead a little bit. Like, why can you just explain to me again the connection? Like, why would Chan, apart from the fact that he's Chinese intelligence, why would he want to help 007 stay rogue? Like, what is in it for him exactly? Obviously, there's a relationship, uh, but is he threatened into helping him? Like, I don't I don't entirely get this. Yeah, I don't know if he's threatened, but for some reason, the script thinks that because he wants to kill Zhao, Chang will be all for it and will be happy to have someone do the wet okay, works right. for so, him, I suppose. Okay. I didn't miss anything yeah. then. It's just that, right? Yeah, that's what I think. Okay. And we've already talked about the whole Bond and Jinx having immediate sex. Like, I, I do still have a problem with that because this is the first time in the series that we actually see Bond do it, which kind of destroys the mythos of him being this super sexual creature, right? And, yeah. you know, the idea but, of his but, allure. But, 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 but I mean, who's he compared to like the legend of Holly Berry, right? I mean, that was mm-hmm. the whole thing. It's like only like this is supposedly what they're saying is that Holly Berry is the is the uh, alpha and omega for Bond, I suppose, in that respect. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. But making a regular guy of Bond in this film 
for a moment where he's anything but a regular guy is just kind of way off for tone. I, I, I don't like it. But, you know, when the yeah. sex get the sex gets real, essentially, it gets revealing when everything else around him is like fucking, well, you said it, Marvel action, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's just weird. Yeah, it's literally that. Um, and not, not to put down Marvel action. I mean, Marvel action works no, well no, in, a, no, no. In, a, in a Marvel action movie because that's what it's designed for. It's designed to take put that fantasy element into the, to the everyday. That's what it's all about. But I mean, but, but in a James Bond film, even though I mean, some of the situations he gets himself in are ridiculous and campy at times or what have you. It still kind of feels still grounded in the physical world, you know. Yeah. And Bond simply reacting to things, and he has kind of an adeptness to to do to to, to do these things. But when he's basically doing stuff that super man technically does uh you know beyond flying um <laughs> yeah well he kind of does that too <laughs> uh, i don't know maybe is bond hiding his cape somewhere i don't know do you think that thing do you think that drone thing uh him the, and Halle the, berry the, the switchblade yeah do you think that that's the uh tomorrow never dies devonshire dive maybe is that what we're getting there the call back to that stuff it could be a nod to that yeah the halo jump uh the halo thought, jump yeah I saw, way, more I, saw, I, saw, I saw it done better in Tomorrow Never Dies. And... Well, okay. We, we got to talk about this, okay, because it's a major part of the story, and I've got a real problem with it because of all the things that we're asked to suspend our disbelief over, the gene therapy is one of, if not the biggest. Like, I, I said a few minutes ago that the helicopter thing was, was the biggest, but realistically, when you... when. When you're taking a North Korean man and turning him into not just a white man, okay... Um, but you're turning him into a white man that's fooled not just like a few people, but has basically become uh, a British citizen and a, pat- a patron long enough to be knighted. Like he's on his yes. way to getting knighted. And all this happens in 14 months. Like that's a bit ridiculous. When he was dis- he, his story was that he was worked in the mines of South Af- of Africa, right? For the diamond mines. Uh-huh. And then he was lucky to find in Iceland, you know, uh, this diamond mind, and then that's how he made his fortune, or something. Yeah, I mean, it comes out of comes out of nowhere and stuff, right? I guess maybe he has frost kind of greasing the wheels for him from the inside on it, but that's but and, and frost being an Olympic athlete, maybe she has some connections. I don't know. Um, that's bizarre. Like this is just they, they, they cra- must, this is crazy town, man. Yeah, the thing is too is is that even if Moon was planning to use those hover cars or whatever to fly across, you know, the uh, the mines and invade South Korea with his faction, um, even then, would they they'd already have the contingency plan of the DNA parlor already underway. Yeah, that just was just his response. His fake his death in, in that moment. Like, uh, I guess by coincidence, he somehow fell off that waterfall and lived, but it was disfigured, and that's how he ended up getting you know connected back to Zhao and to. Find that place. Like I'm just like, how many contingency plans this guy have? Uh, it, it hurts your head now that you think now that you think about it. And the science hurts my head a bit because uh, I don't pretend to know as much as a geneticist. Or... I give them props for trying to explain it. I give them props for that. Uh, well, it's like, they... what we do as well. He's like he's so matter of fact about it, you know. And uh, uh, he's like, first, first we simply um, take out all your bone marrow. Yeah, but that's just it. Like, you can't fucking delete bone marrow. You can't take it all out and then replace it with someone else's. You I can't know, do that. I know. No. Like, <laughs> I understand you can do bone marrow transplants, right? And those things How are other people's bone marrow in your <laughs> bones. Make you're already a full grown like fetus. Like yes. your fetus. 
You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's exactly it. Like it's essentially removing all, like dying. Like you die. Okay, it would take out all your bone marrow, which is your genetic code. So it's like once your bone marrow is taken away, like you, you just you just don't exist, and then you put in someone else's bone marrow. It's like refilling. It's like refilling a car with different fuel. Like that's, but, but how does that change your appearance and who and how you look like? You know exactly, I mean? yeah. right? Exactly. It doesn't yeah. make any sense for 14 months, right? So here's here's what I would like to have seen. Because this film is going to ask us to suspend disbelief so very much, I can go along with this whole 14 months thing. I would much rather... I would much rather suspend my disbelief and, and, and having them tell me, okay, this is just plastic surgery. That's really, 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 really good. Like, I would be happy to say, what a load of bullshit. But then I'd go on with the story. The fact yeah. that the science makes me think, what the fuck? How's the fucking gene therapy shit? Like, what? This is, what? What is going on here? How? All for the purpose like, of, like, an M. Night Shyamalan twist, basically, is what yes, they're trying to do there. Josh, you nailed it, man. That's exactly right. Like, let's try to be more clever than clever. Well, no, you don't have to be. Just tell me it's plastic surgery. I'll think it's a load of nonsense, but I'll go along with it. Because at least, you know, I've seen Facebook off you know that movie remember where they they change faces yeah, nicholas cage and uh yeah, john travolta like, i've seen that and i know how that worked and it was nonsense but i i got that it was some plastic surgery just shit. have him wear a mission impossible mask for god's sake i don't know i just don't know why they decided to do it like and all the science chat being like behind the curtain of oz too you know it's like don't look back here just just like we're all dumb as fuck just keep going on keep going on <laughs> At least if I was told it was plastic surgery, then it would be unbelievable and I'd be laughing about it. It would be a silly bit, but whatever, we'd get on with it. But this is just stupid because they try to make it pseudoscience and they try to make it real so it's distracting real. Yeah, but they're too busy pushing you on to the next action sequence for you to think about it. That's the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, anyway. And what about that, by the way? Like, when we get to when we get to graves in London, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's like Boris Johnson. Didn't Boris Johnson jump out of a plane? Uh <laughs> He did. He actually, yeah, the, the mayor of London, when he was mayor of London, he jumped out of a fucking plane like that. Oh, and boy. He did, yeah. And now he's, God, oh, man. But, yeah, the Clash is playing and all of this stuff. I think this is cringeworthy stuff, man. I really yeah. don't like it. I do not like this stuff at all. I feel like no. Toby Stevens, like, yeah, was it Christian Slater, right, in his early career, didn't he, didn't he, like, really over-egg the Jack Nicholson fetish he that he had going on he kind of did yeah well i feel i feel like toby stevens has got like a max zoran thing going on and I, I actually can't see past him wanting to be christopher walken in the late, late stages of this film and i don't mean with his accent i just mean with his like zaniness yeah what, what he said in the movie was that he was trying to be like an over-the-top version of bond basically oh well, but how okay how does he know Bond? This, this, how, like, you know what I mean? Like this guy that uh, foiled his plan, and and they got who he found out who he was at the last minute before everything went to hell. Yeah, and well, he knows he knows no. this much about Bond, I guess, because Miranda told him all about him. I suppose well, he doesn't look a thing like Bond. And what does Miranda get out of this whole situation as well, story wise? I, I didn't really got her motives. Okay, so she, they were on the fencing team in the Olympics or something. And was there actually a sexual relationship between Graves and Miranda? Like, was there, there must any have kind? Been. Or uh, I thought for a moment they were hinting that him and Zhao were lovers in a way too. Like I, I, I had no idea. <laughs> it's all kinds of nuts, isn't it? Yeah, Zhao I think and, that I think there's actually Zhao too and, many characters in Graves, this movie. There is too many characters. Like I think Zhao did not need to be in this movie at all. 
Um, no, he really didn't. He was confusing, actually, because at one point, both of these people, both of these actors are in the dream machine. Like who's and then we, we get the hint. We get a tease of some p- computer screen that that Zhao is actually trying to become a white man as well. Yeah, that's what that, that was the hint. Yeah. So, because that's what I'm hinting at the whole lovers part. Maybe he maybe he wants to be like the same thing that whatever graves moon graves is you know oh what i mean god it just doesn't make any sense to me because zhao is wearing his fucking history in his face like he's got his diamonds all over his face it's not like there's any question of who he is he's the guy that got blown up in the diamond smuggling act yeah and, and so now he's gonna like you don't have to you don't have to change your whole dna genome just take the fucking take diamonds the fucking out. diamonds out of your cheek man like you know, and anyway, whatever. Granio figures that he must like to have them in his face because I was saying to her, like, in a film where you can change your genome in 14 months, you think they'd be able to surgically remove the rock from the guy's face, right? And she, <laughs> and she's like, well, he must like them in. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe he actually likes it. But <laughs> if like that's the case, or something like uh, rhinestones. I know, but if he's concerned about his identity being figured out, or he wants to like assume a new identity, as we're we're meant to believe, then why not just start by taking the diamonds out of your face so that you, you know, you blend in a bit more yeah yeah that's a good point absolutely but like you say plot right they want him to be a henchman with a with with metal in his face so yeah like, i think how much a better sequence it would have been if it was graves in the jaguar going after bond on the ice i think that would have been a much better sequence in my opinion i don't think so if, because if, i'd if have the whole to movie had nah. ended at the at the ice palace i think i don't know yeah but that would mean i would have to look at toby stevens acting for a few more minutes and i didn't want to do that <laughs> Can you imagine him like salivating behind the wheel of a car? Like I, I wouldn't have wanted to see that. That's true. Yeah, but maybe know. you know you didn't get a lot of graves because they're also focusing on Zhao as well, right? So you never really got a chance for graves to work as well. Because like I like I honestly feel that once they get to graves, like actually appearing in the movie, it's like halfway through the movie, and it's like it's almost like a whole new movie is starting after that. Yes, I think you're right. It does feel like that, and it's almost like it's an overextended opening sequence, almost in a way. Kind of. With like a whole section of nonsense in between. It's because, kind of like Goldeneye in that way, you know, where you don't meet Trevelyan until like halfway through the movie. Maybe they were trying to go for that. But it is disappointing because the first part of the film I'm really going with, I like I like the the sort of um, the incarceration period. I like the, the trade, you know, I like that stuff. But we never learn anything about what Zhao is doing in the British, you know. And that's why it's such a false buildup because we don't get any delivery on what we're meant to invest in at the beginning. Yeah, I, like I would buy Michael Madsen as an NSA agent uh, or a head or whatever if he was actually had more presence in the movie. You know what I mean? Mm, I wouldn't actually. Um, <laughs> I couldn't. I felt I felt his character his character as written and his performance was just terrible. Like I guess but it, like, uh, if they as, focused on stuff like that. I mean, if they had focused uh, on it, that's maybe. a different story. I don't yeah. think I want. I don't want any more characters in this film though. Like if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna build him into the story get rid of a couple of other ones like and what a waste of dench once again too oh total waste yeah. post post golden eye they wasted judy dench in the brazen era and this is another movie that, that cements that for me um even to rules on enough they kind of made her incompetent and and uh she was good in the first two movies Twenty dies, she was all right. Yeah, she was active and she was good, and she was she on had Bond's that whole side a bit. with the admiral and stuff like that. Like I didn't mind that, but for sure. But I think the Craig era gave her, gave Judy Dench the best arc of all, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. Well, anyway, she uh, doesn't get much to do here, does she? She's really just a figure. Um, but getting back to Madsen, get rid of him completely. I thought he was cringeworthy. Really, American really cringeworthy. caricature. He was like an American bad like a caricature. You know what I mean? Uh huh. 
Yeah, anyway, I, I didn't care for him at all. Um, Halle Berry's character, I guess I didn't have too much of a problem with. Uh, I didn't really... I mean, she's strikingly beautiful, of course. Uh, I got no problem with her on the screen, obviously. She was a concept. She wasn't a character. She was a concept. <sighs> yeah, she was a concept. And they gave her such stupid lines. This film is full of so many bad lines. Like It's I like know. one after another after another. And I'm sure, I'm sure that we're beating a dead horse here with all the other good podcasters that have done Bond, reviewers that have done Bond. Like I'm sure we've all, we're all saying the same thing, that, that the double entendres and the, the, the innuendos in this film is just so detracting. And so it's just terrible. Like everything, their whole their whole conversation is, you know, like even in a moment of some some somewhat seriousness, like like what does she say when the lasers are going? Like, oh, I'm gonna be half the girl I used to be. Like everything oh. is a fucking joke with her, and yes. I don't like it. They they force her down to to parrot out these terrible lines. And Absolutely. I th- I think that ruins that 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 it keeps me from liking her and. I don't want to see a spin-off series with this girl. No, well, there was there, there wasn't one. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Did you did you think that Bond found the doctor's office pretty damn quick on the island? Did you did you find that like this underground? All he did was he touched a wall and he found the fucking entrance. Well, yeah, he knows he he has that. You know, it's rule 601, 200. It's like rule six oh one in the MI six agents uh, touch the wall. <laughs> book yeah look for any kind of button or something and uh, uh at least roger moore would have had some kind of device so he could find out he could like uh see through it you know kind of like the when he used to break the safe in drax's office and stuff like that uh, and you know what now that i'm thinking about it as well you you mentioned that jinx kills the doctor right who operated on zhao but yeah i'm wondering or on moon i'm wondering Surely that's a guy that you want to save, don't you? That the, a dude who can do this, and he's got all the fucking answers that you're probably looking for yeah. in terms he, of like, that guy is a piece of shit. But yeah, like no, but uh, he, he he can tell you. You got a better useful. chance. Yeah, he's very useful in terms of his intel because he'll tell you what uh, Moon's probably been wanting to do, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I agree. I, yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe, maybe if he can link Zhao to Moon, then he can definitely do that. That's right. I don't know. I just feel like her instinct was just to shoot him. After she like that was dumb to me. I'm just thinking too, like the whole premise of the DNA parlor too. I mean, just changes it just alters the entire world's dynamic as well. Like, mm-hmm. if the like, why doesn't the Americans have this technology? Or, or but only this guy does. Uh, is this something that that's that's in you know highly kept secret in certain circles, or is this some or is this something that only exists just in this aspect in this fictional world? Uh, like to me, it just like it just makes the point of making a spy like. Maybe like the MI6 uses beauty parlors too, and Bond is actually uh, a black woman, and we don't even know it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. No, I mean, so that's those... a bit of a nod back to earlier we were talking about before, but <laughs> are, are those are those clinic scenes? I mean, the the way that all this is storyboarded, it, this is Peter Lamont, right? This is yes. his production design. This, this is his production design. Yeah, which is always pretty pretty good in my opinion. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, but it just feels like it's it's destroyed so quickly. Yeah, yeah, and he, and it goes uh, all sci-fi. Yeah. But as you, bit... as you rightly said, they're not interested. They just want to push you to the next set piece. Exactly. Uh, well, okay. Um, I I got a couple notes here made about the story that I thought was interesting. Like, and this is kind of where I feel like the, the script is too wordy, and it's it's too it's too interested in being clever than actually delivering on anything interesting or true. Because you remember when they're in that 
that that um, they're having the sword fight, which, by the way, I think is a really cool sequence. I think that's one of the better parts of the mid-section. It is. It's the best action. I think it's my favorite yeah. action sequence in the whole movie, to be honest with you. The sword fight is very well done. Well, uh, I, forget the, the, I forget the guy's name, but the guy who did um, the – who was the coordinator for the sword fight and teaching people how to use swords, he was also uh, – he's used on a lot of movies, uh, particularly like um, all of the sword fighting in The Lord of the Rings and the, and the training was all done by that same guy. Oh, so cool. I think Lee Tamahari probably pulled him from his buddy, Peter Jackson, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and – and probably you knew that they were going to need to do that sequence. That's cool. Um, I still hate how it's called Blades and it's Don Gentleman's Club, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it is pretty dumb. Yeah. As I said, Hellfire Club. You know what I mean? It's uh-huh. like one of those like places where evil villains who dress up like uh, they're in the 18th century, you know, they do all their scheming or something. Yeah. Well, getting back, though, to what I was saying about the script, uh, like in that particular scene, you've got the whole Madonna nonsense at the beginning. And then you have Graves talking about how, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to evoke the old fashioned way of first blood drawn from the torso. Now, that itself, I figured out, is a, is a reworked reference to a French style of dueling that's known as epée or fencing. Epée. Right. Epée, um, yeah. But do you notice that like immediately after saying this right and having this sort of clever depth in the in the, i don't even know it's depth really surface level depth i guess uh nothing that bond or graves do resembles anything like traditional fencing nothing oh it's no, just no. like all they're doing then is fencing. just like just kind of scene doesn't even start as fencing it's just like jumping over furniture and slicing at each other and like <laughs> yeah kicks and it, it's just like mortal combat like, there's nothing about epi in this at all and I feel like, you know, you're given this and maybe that's a character point. Maybe it's like it's all surface, right? Like your knowledge and your your upbringing and your poshness. It's all just surface because you're just a monster underneath. I don't know. Maybe that's that, given to film too much credit. I found that Toby Stevens actually, that was like one of his best sequences in the film. He really channeled that anger and rage he had and he did it really well. And if he had did that in other scenes in the movie, I think he would have been more convincing or if he was written mm-hmm. in that more convincing uh, like just the antagonism between him and Brosnan was there on screen Brosnan was so f- angry and upset and he was just so hated he's you could tell Brosnan just hated but Brosnan's bomb just hated this guy so much um because and he, and he knew that there was something this there was something so dirty about this guy he could feel it deep down and I think Brosnan conveyed that very well in that sequence. yeah I think I thought I thought so as well the physical could... acting was mm-hmm. was was excellent in that in that whole in that whole in the whole moment yeah. and I just wish I wish just wish that belonged in a better movie you know well, the what the physical acting, the scene itself, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure, I can see that, but at least it gives this film something to to be interested. Beats in. Roger Moore is like going through sugar glass for like a whole sequence. Yeah, that's got its own charm, though. Um, okay, I'm gonna move ahead. Just to ask you what you thought of this. Okay, like I got a couple notes made towards the end of the film. Like, I really lost interest in the forced momentum of Bond's escape from Graves' lair. I felt that it went from dumb to to like stupid to outlandish and then you get into this realm of like fantasy video game embarrassing like you know where he escapes the he escapes the biosphere or the biodome that the fucking Epcot Epcot Center Jurassic Park or whatever it is and then yeah then he goes ice cliff windsurfing like that 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 could be like you know forget your fucking moonraker pigeons man the cgi ice cliff windsurfing could be the nadir of this entire franchise for me oh i i definitely agree it was terrible that whole sequence was just terrible yeah like uh just imagine think of Moon, moonraker we watched like last you know last time around and you have bond using a hang glider from like the uh, boat on the amazon right and going and the, over the waterfall and him flying away on the hang glider uh, that's all possible though it's all possible and it looked so good and like i don't understand well, 
same way. It, it looked good. It didn't look so good. <laughs> it looked good. It looked yeah, good. Yeah. It looked good. Okay, fine. It looked better. Yeah. But hey, man. And then he exits that jump bone dry. Do you notice that? Like, there's no water on him at all. No. Without like, even soap. Ah, oh, Jesus. Like, that's dumb. But, like... Did... And, then he, and then he comes back, and then he goes on another chase afterwards immediately. Like, they're just setting up set piece to set piece to set piece. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you have any time at all for that? I mean, I'm being quite dismissive of all of that. I found it I found it really took me out of it because I'm just staring at how hideous it is. But dude, yeah. as soon as I got to Iceland, I was just I shut my brain off with this movie. Yeah. Even the DNA clinic, I could kind of I could kind of because it wasn't they weren't quite because sure, because until you until you meet Graves, you don't really know what the DNA clinic really did and how it changed someone's identity, right? So maybe I was thinking because if you think about it, before the DNA clinics, after the DNA clinic scene, we still don't really know how powerful or how effective, I guess I, I should say, the DNA parlor was. Right. Because we don't know. Maybe it's this guy who they're looking for is is like looks slightly different than what he does before. Maybe it's just a really good uh, like a plastic new form of plastic surgery or something that this guy is doing. That's kind of that's kind of that's, that's kind of what I figured out. I myself was like very kind of OK when we had the, re- the reveal about Graves being Moon. Right. And I was just like, are you effing serious? And that was when I just shut my brain off at, at that part of the movie. It was right there. Mm-hmm. And that was in Iceland. That was in the Iceland sequence. I still was with the movie even after the, the Los Organo scene. Okay. Well, I think that because that's I was, when I... I did not know the extent of, of like, I did not know the extent of what that how DNA plot, machine, yeah, yeah, how yeah. the DNA machine did, you know? Right. Yeah. Fair enough. So the plot hadn't yet ruined that particular piece of scientific uh, development or that hadn't ruined that for you. I didn't know what it, how 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 you know who it is because I'm wondering who is who is it, who is the person inside MI6 who is the who is doing this like I was thinking is someone we is it someone we know who's with MI6 that that is doing this you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, that's what I was wondering like is it like uh, what's his name Colin Salmon's character mm-hmm. uh, I, I forget the character's name now is it Morrison or yeah I really like him he's a good actor actually Colin Salmon yeah he's pretty cool he was in the first couple of seasons of. Uh, arrow and he was really good on that actually he was kind of like a father figure to like oliver queen it was um it's like his dad's business partner it's just, yeah. he was actually he's, he's, he's a good actor no um I, I, I know that he was a big hunk on uh what's that british uh soap opera uh eastenders oh was he i think yeah i believe he was on that cool. yeah i didn't know that uh, can you explain to me this biodome that graves has got in iceland like, what the hell is it there for like it's, it's a never diamond proper- line I mean, didn't they explain that to you? It's a diamond mine that apparently has like one little tiny room with lasers and then has this whole kind of like in, internal biosphere thing or something. Like, why do you have to do this, Lamont? Why is he doing this? He, I guess they wanted to create like a, uh, a Ken Adam, a, a, not a Ken Adam set, right? That's what they wanted no, to do. There's no payoff with it. Like, this no. just, because there's no, oh, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I just, just do what he's told, man. This. He's just doing what he's told. Okay, well, fine, but it doesn't make any sense to me why this, the biodome is not properly explained to me. I, maybe it was to you, but anyway, at least we're on the same page with one thing, that this Icarus control does look like a Nintendo Power Glove. It definitely does. And then it has that cool kind of suit, that, 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 that Iron Man cool suit. suit. That's, that that's Iron, terrible. That Iron Man suit or something. And it's not even yeah. Iron Man suit. Iron Man no. suit is cool. That's it's, just... it's terrible. This Josh, this... This is a fucking ridiculous thing. Like, who builds a fucking mech suit with a shock myself horribly button in the middle of it? Who does that? <laughs> who does that? 
Like, all Bond has to do is push the middle of this chest and, and it's just... He's, just... he's just done. And that's What's him. the point of that? Is that like for like... Is that for like... Uh, is that, is, is, is that like a, know. Is that like a, an enema device or something? Or <laughs> I guess maybe it is. Like... Electric shop uh... therapy suit? I don't know. What did you okay, think just of... Like... The, just just of, think of it of though, the right? Father son dynamic in this movie between Patricide, Moon. yeah. That's that's where the analyze this comes into it, I guess. The father ah. and son Freudian reverse dark Luth Darth Luke stuff going on here, man. Like with a bit yeah. of the with a bit of fucking Palpatine's electricity. I, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know. <laughs> I at this point at this point I'm like, yeah, fuck man, bring them all in, you know, just bring bring everybody back in through the cargo bay doors. I don't care anymore. Bring GW Pepper. Bring yes, fuck it, man. Put Pepper on the boat, no problem. Get Pepper, get get connected bring him up front let's just yeah. have them all because at this point i don't know like i don't know what's going on here and i don't care and do you notice like why does like he have James to die Bond jr yeah but he dies in slow motion and like when when he when he shoots his dad it's just it's kind of like why what's with all the slow motion here the the, the <laughs> kind of slow down the it doesn't add more drama to the stupidity of this it just makes the stupid slower it doesn't like, it doesn't do anything or torturous that way I don't know, man, but... but languishing yeah. in torture. <laughs> and how how did it go from night to day with the plane taking off? Did you notice that? They get onto that plane at fucking night. And, it, like, the next scene, it's day, morning light. It must have been, like, at, like, 6, 5 o'clock no. in the morning or something. Oh, no way, no way. It was properly nighttime, man. Anyway, whatever. That, I'm not I guess, defending it. I'm just offering uh, hot I guess take. So. I, I guess so. I mean, the slow motion take. stuff in this film is terrible, though. Like, it... And those weird angles, those weird kind of 3D angle twists that they kind of do with the, they do with the camera, like the diving sequence. Oh, no. oh, that's right. And that reminds me of that dumb, dumb, dumbass thing. Like, so so Jinx has just finished killing Miranda Frost in the stupid way that she does, right? Yes. And then, then when we see her next, she's she sat, like, squat, doing nothing in that dojo. Like, she's waiting for the fucking camera to come for her umpteenth punchline, right? It's like, yeah. it's so bothersome. Like, why the hell haven't you been up front helping Bond in the whole, you know, know suck my life out the front window fight instead yeah. you've just been sitting back there looking cool holding a pose that really bothered me like the camera wanted to show me that she was there doing nothing you know like, who i felt bad for was vlad i mean yeah yeah i mean think about it man like the guy is like he gets gets to have graves this, this up-and-coming you know mogul uh, type person hires you to build his, his equipment and everything like that and then you're all you're pulled into his whole uh, Oedipal relationship with his father and, <laughs> and he gets sucked out of a plane. <laughs> no way. Poor Vlad. Was Vlad even evil? Like I don't like, think so. I don't think he was. I, 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 like, I, I don't think maybe he was like a, a peacenik. I don't know. He, like, Look back at Tori Never Dies even. Mm-hmm. At least they explained Gupta and his presence in the story. This is true. And he, yeah. and he made sense and he had motivation and he was actually kind of a character in the movie. He you know was. what I mean? Yeah, he kind of was, yeah. Yeah, but Vlad was seems like they're just trying to kind of just trying to tack anyone on there to be someone to be his assistant, and that's kind of the problem with this movie. Yeah, he's Vlad. You got a Vlad lot of, to me is you got a lot thematic. of There's a yeah, lot of there's a lot of Vlads. There's a lot of Star Trek red shirts in this film, and I'm guessing <laughs> I'm guessing that that's why the the plane sucks all these bodies out because yeah, the whole coup, right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, look, man, I'm just going to give you my scores, okay? I think I'm done talking about this movie. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I probably stepped on your toes a few times here, but... Ah, uh, that's all right, buddy. I'm just going to give you my scores, okay? So for story, uh, there were some parts I enjoyed, okay? There were some parts I enjoyed, like the first six minutes of the movie. I liked those parts. 
And then there was two hours that follows that, and I didn't really like that stuff so much. I liked <laughs> I liked the the setup as you did. I liked using those title sequences with Bond. I liked the hint at the PTSD. I liked the suggestion that this guy is human and he's frail and he cracked. Um, and I would have been okay with the the sex stuff as well if the rest of the film wasn't so crazy town. Like, but tonally it was way off. Anyway, I'll get to that in a second. The story, I went three and a half because although I liked... Wow. Yeah, man, it was... I, I, and I, do you know what? I thought about it. I'm like, that's a low mark, Scott. Like, are you do just, you know what I gave it? Are you taking the piss or what? Like, but no, I really feel like it deserves to fail like that. I gave it three and a half as well, so don't Did feel you? bad. Oh, yes. wow, cool. Okay. So you and I are both at three and a half. Cool. Um, yes. Shall we see what Jeff said about the story? No, we'll keep Jeff till the end because his stuff's kind of out of sequence. We'll keep him till the end. Um, so yeah. story three, three point five. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you continue with your spiel? Okay. Uh, acting. The script doesn't give an this actor is a tough, much. This is a tough number to give. I, yes, I think a it's really a very tough, tough number. number to give. But I have given it. I've given the acting a five in this film. I gave it. I gave it a five because. I like Brosnan. I think he's really consistent. He's doing a good job with the cheese that they're offering him. And yes. I don't think Miranda... He was unflappable in this movie. He was really... I mean, he's good. And you know what yeah. this proves to me? This proves to me that he is probably... if He's a guy that can give you Goldeneye and Die Another Day. The consistency in his character is, is similar to that of Roger Moore's. He can do... You know, he's going to give you what he gives you. And if you like that, then you're going to like Brosnan. And you know what? I think Brosnan could could very well be my second favorite James Bond. And I would never have thought I'd say that. Unfortunately, we've got such a shallow pool. We only have four films to use. We don't have a really, really deeply serious one or, you know, one that challenges his character or really gets into his character. But we don't have that for Connery or more either, really. We've only got a bit of that for Lazenby and a lot of that for Craig, right? And Dalton. A little bit for Dalton, yeah, yeah. But I think... I think that Die Another Day, if it proves anything positive to me, it's that Brosnan is a very good actor. And, you know, this movie isn't his best, but he upholds it. Any gravity that this film has is because of him. A hundred percent. And it's not the other actors in the movie that hold this it up. Really it's him, 100%. It's him. So if, it, yeah. if the film deserves any credit, it's because of Pierce Brosnan. He's fun to watch. He's still uh, entertaining and... It's it's all down to him, and I wish, wish, wish that you know he had been given uh, either at the beginning, at the end of Moore's tenure, or you know maybe creeping on. If we hadn't had those six years that hiatus, you know, it would have been yeah. at the end of the '90s or at the end of the '80s. It would have been nice to see what maybe an extra one or two would have done for him then. But I gave it a five overall. I thought Toby Stevens was really poor. I don't doubt what you're saying about him being a good actor, but I found his sneering. I found he had one facial expression in this oh, whole yeah. movie. Just the looked sneer. like a, a spanked ass. Like I just, oh, I couldn't deal with it. And yeah, it, it was years later when I said, "Who did I see this guy from before?" Mm-hmm, and I looked, mm-hmm. like, "Oh my God, he was Gustav Graves." And I yeah. was just like, okay, it's like, "Okay, wow, well, that guy is definitely spend more time getting acting lessons from his mom. That's for sure." Um, well, the, yeah. the Halle Berry inclusion was fine, but the script just made she it was, stupid, and I hated all the the dialogue. It was so pants. Yeah, she was easily she was the worst flat. script. She it, was flat too. Yeah, she was. I never really got any chemistry between her and him or her and Brosnan personally. Well, the chemistry I got was between two actors who can hold. That's what yes. I got. I didn't yeah. get I didn't get any great personal chemistry. No, because no. you think where they meet, right? They meet at that tiki bar or whatever, and 
What he said? It's yeah, it's it's just all one-liners. And so yeah. when 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 you're basing your relationship or your developed character relationship on one-liners and innuendo, how can there be anything but surface? There just isn't anything there. Yeah. And what we're meant to feel unlike some of the other Bond films, like you and Jeff and myself, we've, we've gone through the Roger Moore films that deal with him with younger actresses and, you know, a very avuncular, almost father-like relationship he has with Melina and their sex is very agreed upon at the end, you know, it's just kind of like whatever. You know, we, we get this idea of maybe there being something there, whether it's a, a touch of compassion or a bit of charisma or a little bit of sex appeal or whatever. But here, I can only ever picture Jinx and Bond as two agents who fuck and then go away again. Like, that's it. Yes. They've got nothing to draw on because the script gives them nothing to draw on but sex jokes. And I find that really dismissive and I find it really disappointing that they wanted to make Bond that. Like I really, I, I feel as a fan, this real letdown to me that script yeah. and and it and hurts the have, acting. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, so I went five for my atmosphere. You know, we've talked about the good stuff. We've talked about the bad stuff. Like this is a real hodgepodge. Um, I but I simply couldn't give it more than four because the tones are way off. There's inconsistency in the feeling and the moods of the film. There are some great sets. Okay, but we don't stay there. We're just pushed so quickly from thing to thing to thing. Not a lot of real locations. And I find that that takes me out of it because the CGI is just way, way too harped upon and invested in. And it, you know, unfortunately, the good, like the Blades Club, the nice stuff there, that is almost a distant memory because of the heavy hand played by the CGI. Yes. So I, I went where, four overall. Where is, yeah, you know, where, 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 where is Chris Corvold? Where is John Steers? Where is Derek Meddings? You know, I think they're good. They're good. Well, their good work is lost in this film. Yes. So I, I got a total of 12.5 out of 30 money pennies. And I think, you know, I, that's the best I can give it. I went three and a half for story, five for acting and four for atmosphere. Thinking okay. of all of the sets and the music and everything. Now you went three, five for acting or for story. What did you do for your acting and atmosphere? I gave it five. Brosnan was strong in this, uh, the okay. best that he could, it, given the dialogue and what the story that he had. He, yep. he did a good job in this. He was consistent, as you said. Um, people that I find very talented nowadays, like Rosamund Pike and Toby Stevens even, um, I found them very, very uh, weak in this movie. Now, it was Rosamund's debut, so I give her credit. I, you know, I, I give her uh, I, I give her the benefit of the doubt on that, and I did see her years later, a year or two later, in much better stuff, so... Um, I, I did find her. She intrigued me in, in in a way. There was something about her that I think that she wanted to she wanted to express this character, but the story wasn't or the script wasn't letting her to, um, and that's why she came out as a flat character for, for me. Um, moving on, yeah, Graves. Uh, the actor who played Colonel Moon actually I, I thought was probably a better Graves than Toby Stevens was in that movie. Mm, yeah, I would have like, liked to have seen more he, of him. He, yeah, he played more. He played the like I believed in his character that he was just some like Western educated North Korean general, and you know because North Korean it's so famous for his nepotism, right? His story just makes perfect sense, you know. It like, does. Yeah, actually, yeah. that's a good point, and it would have been perfectly fine to have him just be in hiding, you know, even hiding from his dad. Like, but why do we have to go to the DNA crazy stuff? Like, this is the science of the time. Like, did yes. this was this just like a Fox ticker headline that 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 Purvis and Wade are like, yes let's do this yeah 
Yeah, where was I, 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 I? Like, I don't know where Barbara and Michael G. Wilson were signing off on that. I don't. Maybe they had no. Maybe the Purvis and Wade got the studio to get into it. I don't know. Or maybe Tamahori was hooked on was into it because Tamahori was was on even like when the script was being written. Tamahori was on was on board slightly after that, so he was there from the very beginning. <sighs> yeah. So what yeah. about atmosphere, pal? What'd you go for? I gave it a five. Okay. Um, okay. I, there was some atmosphere that I really liked about the movie, like uh, that kind of reminded me of some older Bond films, at least, and the nostalgia was a strong factor in that. Um, and I like the idea of the torture sequence in the credits and how that carried on from the movie, um, that the flow of that and how it, it, it looked like it was building into some kind of story that didn't go to where it should have gone, in my opinion. And I'm not saying that because, you know, oh, I don't like yeah, just because it's not my idea and they go to it that I that I have to hate it. You know, I'm not like that. I under, I appreciate different points of view and I appreciate things being twisty and turny, you know, if it if it fits the narrative of the story. But when you just do something like that and it's jarring and uh, jarring can be given, to, I think, to all three categories here, to be honest with you. All right. Well, and, that brings... and, 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 and tonality was just off all the way through this whole movie. Okay, good. I'm, well, I, we see that. It was schizophrenic almost in a way. <laughs> yeah. You know so what? Yeah, that's three, a good word Three and for a half, it. five and five. Analyze this. That's that's uh, <laughs> that's good. Schizophrenic. Okay, so three, five, three and a half, five and five. Uh, so I'm at a 12.5. You're at a 13.5. Let's see what Jeff thought. Okay, here I am reading straight from the, oh, the horse's mouth. Double uh, O Chapman. This movie is a steaming pile of garbage. Stream of consciousness here. The editing is horrendous. They do slow-mo for no reason, and so bad it makes the pigeon scene in Moonraker look like it was done by Kubrick. The dialogue, utterly atrocious. Read this, bitch. <laughs> Keep it in. I'm not <laughs> finished yet. I'm checking out. Global warming something something stupid. I don't remember. Uh, my girlfriend said this was the first one she ever saw and was like, why is Bond so popular? I can understand that. The goddamn windsurfing man and that CGI. It's just terrible. Money pennies. Atmosphere 2. What atmosphere? There was no flow except for tons of water from Joel Schumacher's unused layer for Mr. Freeze. Uh, it also reminded uh, me of the snowball fight with Huey, Dewey, and Louie in that Disney Christmas special. <laughs> uh, of course, that was well done, and Donald I was... I did a Big Duck reference, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Donald was a much better villain. <laughs> Donald, he says, was a much better villain. So, two for atmosphere for Jeff. Uh, obviously, he can be flippant. He's only sending in the scores. Yeah. Acting, two. Mm, very low. They had good actors, but literally made it so that they all sounded like idiots in a porno. With B-movie lines, terrible timing. Oh, wait. <laughs> Tamahori did, dis did direct a porn. They should make, he says, a formal apology to Cubby for this. I have nothing good to say about anyone in this film regarding acting. Also, Michael Madsen as an NSA director? Fuck off. <laughs> and Halle Berry, apparently, according to Double uh, O Chapman here, Halle Berry doing the Dr. No scene is blasphemous. Yeah. So story. Okay, so acting there, we had a two. Atmosphere, we had a two. Story, you guessed it, a two. PTS <laughs> PTSD bond could work, but it didn't. Over the top, bullshit about face changing, nothing captivates the audience, it's almost a parody of Bond. If they worked with the Havana stuff, or even the North Korea stuff maybe, but the Ice Palace and the face stuff together is just wrong. Also, Invisible Car is lame, even though it's an Aston Martin, it's still lame. 
uh, that's a two. So what do we have? <laughs> Six points for Jeff. Do you know, it's funny, hey? Jeff was also quite hard on Spectre. And yeah. hard to the point where, like, I was kind of questioning, like, mm, was it that bad, really? This one, feel, I feel I feel more like he's got some justification here. Yes. Like, he, he appreciated the, the atmosphere of Spectre, but really went hard on the acting and hard on the story. He failed the film overall. Uh, I didn't go that hard on Spectre. I mean, I quite enjoyed it, actually. I was a, I was a bit harsh, but I, I still stand by my scoring mm-hmm. because I think those things fail, Those things didn't create a hole that should have been uh, that that I wanted or that I felt. And uh, that was one of the reasons why. I, why, but Spectre though, like I would have put Spectre way ahead of Die Another Day in ter- terms of my Bond rankings. Well, me too. Uh, ultimately, yeah. though, I mean, if we're going to tally up the scores and think about it all, uh, Jeff gave Spectre a twelve overall, and he gave this film a six overall. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely a dip in quality there for sure. So there you go. There's our money penny scoring for Die Another Day. Chances are it's maybe similar to yours. I don't know if you're listening. If you're a Bond fan and you want to weigh in on our scoring or any of the points you've heard here, then by all means, get in touch with us here on Bond by Numbers and let us know how you felt. Equally, if you think that this is an action movie that works well for the time period, Bond has always been about the time period. He's always jumped on trends. He's always been happy to do and reflect the society that that he comes from. So if you just accept this as Bond and you feel as though you're not owed anything by the canon or the series or the producers and you just like your Bond action driven, then you're probably a much higher scorer on this one than us. And yeah, you know, we'd welcome to hear from your comments as well. So hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or uh, drop us an email and let us know what you think. Yeah, we love hot takes. And now it's time to hear what Double OGO has to say about Die Another Day. The final authority on the subject of scoring, of course. Of course. Once you hear the words of double O-G-O, um, there is no more <laughs> an analysis required. That's right. Icarus has cut the ice, you may say. Icarus has cut the ice. The, yes, it has gone into full hubris after that. It is burned <laughs> up in the atmosphere, blown to pieces. <laughs> it is done. Hello, Double O-G-O. Hi, how are you, Double O-Seven? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just fine, thank you. And I'm here today to talk to you about the incredible Die Another Day. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, guys, yeah. first time I saw it, I didn't understand it, and I, just, I still don't understand it. Yeah, it's not one of the best, is it? No, it's not. Well, what's it all about anyway? Well... That's a weighted question. But, but there was no story to it at all, was there? The story was just bonkers, completely bonkers. Yeah. And I mean, I, I from beginning to end, uh, you know, well, I like the, like the chases and all the rest of it, you know. But sure, yeah. I, I still try to figure out what it was that they were trying to prove. Well, uh, I could try to explain it to you, and yeah. I, I will try to, but... You have to suspend your disbelief 10,000-fold with this movie. <laughs> Go ahead, try, try me. Okay, I'll try anyway. So the movie begins with Bond in North Korea, right? 
Yeah, got and, that. Yeah, and he's in there trying to intercept a smuggling operation involving conflict diamonds, right? So these are diamonds that have been obtained through very illegal means by warlords. But they and, all, and the they all came out of the water. Yeah, they all came out of the water because that was them arriving in North Korea. Like, I don't know how they were surfing or how they got yeah. there. But, you know, I don't, I don't know where they were coming from. China, I guess. I did, the, the, the thing, that in itself is ridiculous, of course. And Yeah, well, I mean, right off the bat, I figured he was by himself and the other guys were after him. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a logical assumption. But, in fact, it was them all together. Okay. And you never saw the other two, or maybe they got but killed. But you never got that, did you? No, not, not quite. But he was carrying explosives in his surfboard. Did you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who doesn't, right? <laughs> right, exactly. There was a lot of things that, you know, stupid little things like that. There was, who does, who does stuff like that? Yeah, so essentially, essentially the story goes that he's in North Korea trying to interfere with this um, this, this smuggling operation. and Which was diamonds? That's right, diamonds. But you see from all the sports cars there that the guy also had sports cars, so he was obviously... You know, Moon. A, yeah. a fetish. That's right. Moon, General Moon, was making a lot of money yeah, doing yeah. other things. But yeah. anyway, Bond basically, um, <clears throat> Bond basically killed him, or so we all thought that he was dead. Uh, and then he was taken prisoner. And so for 14 months, Bond is a prisoner of the North Koreans. And you see him talking to that general's father, the older guy, Moon. Right, General. Yeah. Yep. Got that. So you see him talking to him. But, but did, I got the impression that the older guy didn't know what his son was up to. You're absolutely correct, yes. He didn't know what the what the son was up to. And he didn't really find out until the end when his son returns. Yeah. When his son returns. He was, was trying to get rid of him. Yeah. He returns as this guy uh, after undergoing. But, he, but he, shot his, he shot his own father, didn't he? He did, yes. <laughs> yeah, he did. And... Let's not forget the the leap here that we're meant to believe that this man, this white British man, um, is the same person because the the North Korean general just underwent some DNA transplanting gene therapy. Yeah, that, that's what it was all about. That's, yeah. that's what I couldn't figure out. How, how can you change your DNA? Well, you can't. Not like that. And you certainly can't do it. I mean, there are some incredible things being done with DNA and gene therapy. Of course there are, but not like that. And not in 14 months either. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I would hope not. Well, I mean, by the, time that, by the time that Bond gets out of the North Korean prison and he's on this guy's trail, this guy Graves has emerged. And he's, the, he's now a white man who is this, this big patron of, the, of English society. And he's about to be knighted by the queen. Like, all of this happens in 14 months. Like, it's just unbelievably yeah. stupid. And then, of yeah, course... But now, sorry, go ahead. What was the, wasn't that the relationship... There, well, let me put it this way. He, his appearance was changed, but he was the son of the the general, wasn't uh, he? That's right, yes. Yep. Yep. God, I mean, Scotty, I'm, I'm really confused, you know, about the, what the whole thing was all about. But uh, Don't worry about it. So was I. Uh, how, could, how, could, how could his son, who you saw the picture of, yes. who was very obviously uh, Korean, yeah, uh -huh. look like... 
such a, an English lord. Well, that's right. And that's the stupidity or the disbelief that we're asked to suspend. Um, it, okay. it comes down to the explanation that the film gives you is that he received all this sort of gene therapy so that his DNA was tampered with and they removed all of his bone marrow and this sort of silly stuff. And they basically recreated a new, a new yeah, person. Yeah, because they, they all had surgical marks, didn't they? That's right. Yes, they all did. And, and I mean, it was... So, so it, wasn't, it was more than surgery. Yeah, it was. And one of the side effects, of course, is that he doesn't sleep. So he needs to go into this dream machine thing for like three, like an hour a day or something. I, the whole the whole story is, is ridiculous. Plus, he's got that guy, that Zhao character, henchman, who's walking around with the diamond stuck in his face. <laughs> like at no point did he think I'm going to get rid of this. I wonder who that up. Yeah, it just seems it seems ridiculous to me that they could transform an entire human's genome but not remove diamonds from a guy's skin. <laughs> or maybe he wasn't there. That's true. That's a good point. Maybe he felt maybe he felt that they were cool. Star studded. Yes, star studded indeed. So that's I mean, look, there is more there's more like with uh, the, the the female I characters. wish I had the book. Have you got the book? No, Ian Fleming because Ian Fleming wrote all these books, you know, like... Well, he never wrote this one. This was not an Ian Fleming story. You know, no. This is something they cooked up themselves. They totally cooked this up themselves in 2001, yeah. 2002. Yeah. Yes, because there's no more like something that Ian Fleming would write. No, this this is really silly. I would silly. say that he would turn over in his grave so he could see what they've done to a lot of his stories. Most definitely. Because he got yeah. a he, he He worked for the, the British... Uh, Intelligence, yeah. Naval intelligence. Yes, during the during the Second World War, and, and a lot of those stories are, are factual. Well, he, yeah, I mean, he drew from his own real experience as he wrote, yeah. for sure, yeah. And, and other people's as well. And I don't think there was anything that he saw during World War II or later before his death that quite compares with the uh, Icarus, the Icarus satellite that gives the sun's power to... <laughs> to uh, I'm you know. sure he didn't, because I don't believe they were up there then. Uh, no, and they're still not up there. <laughs> no. Well, not, oh, not... there's satellites up there. Oh, yeah. But, but not... I don't think you're beaming down on... Uh, on, on uh... Oh, well, never mind. At least we're having a laugh at it, but aren't we? We're having a laugh, all right. But, you know, to, to try it... to... You know, and this is why I feel bad for Pierce Brosnan, Granny O, because I like him as James Bond. When when he performs James Bond, I don't I don't think he's bad at all. But neither one of his films, no. neither one of his films, have really given him good. But serious he was the material. one who got. He, see, this is what took it away from me with Pierce was that he always had this quip, you know, smart remark. That's right. Yeah. Afterwards, I can't remember what it was, but I had a big. But I got a laugh at it. But let's put it that way. Yeah, and you know it's sad. Yeah. It's sad though because this movie is inundated with double entendres and stupid cheesy lines <laughs> that it it does it does. I, I, maybe you weren't supposed to take it seriously. No, I of course you weren't. I don't think you were. But like at the same time, Pierce Brosnan, I think, did a good job trying. Yeah, that's right. You know, he, he tried. I think that's why um, Sean Connery made it so. So real life, you know, mm -hmm. well, because he, he was the first one, wasn't he? He was the first one, and yeah, know, and then and, and he, in my way of thinking at the time, because I was just married then, mm -hmm. I remember going down to the drugstore and, and getting the in Fleming's double or seven books. Yeah, sure, reading before the and, film, uh, exactly, and and uh, but he did he he made uh, the double or seven. 
series. Well, as far as I was concerned, it was Sean Connery who was the real Bond. And a, and a good number of people would agree with you. I mean, he is regarded as one of, if not the best Bond by the majority of fans. But Sure, I'm at, sure. But I think today's modernized, or today's fans and audiences probably like Daniel Craig the best, you know? Oh, sure. I, and I looked at the other ones after, even um, Daniel Craig, when I saw him first, and he was so fair. Yeah. I thought, well, I don't like him. And then by the time, you know, he had a couple of movies, mm-hmm. I was all born. Yeah, for sure. But, you know... Except because he, he did carry this story. He does, yeah. He did carry the story. But the story in this movie is so ridiculous that Pierce Brosnan has Absolutely. no Absolutely. Pierce yeah. Brosnan doesn't have a chance. You, I couldn't figure out from beginning to end what, what it was all about. And even when I was thinking about it, you know, when you were going to call... Yes. What am, I, what am I saying? Because I still don't understand what it's all about. Well, yeah, it was really about Bond chasing Korean. Down. Well, yeah, well, in in fact, when Bond first gets on, like when you see when he escapes and he goes into Hong Kong after the hovercraft chase at the beginning, right? He goes into Hong yeah. Kong and he gets dressed and all that sort of stuff and he looks himself again and he's all dapper and then he goes on the case, he goes on the trail of this guy, Gustav Graves, and Graves turns out to be this Korean general who has gone through all of son. the gene therapy. Yeah. The yeah. son, yeah, that's right. But see, you didn't get that at all during the movie until the, the very end. Well, yeah, he Bond picked, figured it out. Um, I, never, I never got it anyway. No, well, you know what? I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel bad about that, Granny-O, because the movie does an excellent job of distracting you with so many other things to look at, like... You know, you've got yeah. you've got so many crazy stunts and set pieces in here that don't seem to connect to the overall narrative. Yeah, but I definitely, it didn't seem to have anything to do with the with the story at all. No, it was very weird. It's like this is a this is a film that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and further and further and further away from the story that it became at the that it started out being. Yeah, because the beginning. Like, like I they liked. were just trying to fill it up. Well, the beginning of the film I quite enjoyed. I thought it was quite good. You know, the the, the part at the beginning with the hovercrafts and Bond being uh, escaping and all of that. I was very much in, invested in the movie then. But once it went to Crazy Town with this um, this yeah. guy who, yeah. you know, was doing. Uh, well, I, did, I didn't know you could do that. Like, like for instance, all the all the mine deals. Uh, the hovercraft could skim over it and not set them off? Well, this is a point of some scientific contention, I think. I, I don't think they actually could, but... Uh, yeah, I the, wouldn't think so either. This was I mean, a suspending your disbelief as they crossed the demilitarized zone, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. But it, anyway, it's a silly... it, it was... A, it, fill up my hour and a half that I had nothing else to do. Well, that's true. It does. But I found it quite distracting and I didn't like how... Well, I guess when you compare that with the other ones, yeah. that was way down at the bottom. That's true. And, you know, it's funny. You were mentioning Sean Connery a few moments ago. Connery had the benefit too, because he was the first one, the film's we're still trying to be like the stories, like the novels, a yeah, little bit more. That's right. You know, it was trying to find their way back to Ian Fleming. Whereas this movie is like, you know, the technology of filmmaking hadn't advanced to the point where they were using special computer effects and everything as well. Because a lot sure. of a lot of this movie looks really fake. If I, I don't know how you feel about that, but yes, I, I there was a couple of parts there I thought that, that that's stupid. Yeah, you know? it looks really dumb, almost like a cartoon. <laughs> and if they could, if one there, um, like a, like 
piece of cardboard that's right. stuck up, you know, and you're supposed yeah. to represent somebody. Yes, they should have quit before that one. Yeah, well, there are good things in it. There are fun things. The sword fight, I quite enjoyed. I like the hovercraft stuff. Yes, now they were good. Mm-hmm. You know, because usually sword fights are only about like a couple of minutes or so, and you're supposed to believe that they were, you know, masters or whatever. That's right. And... Uh, Mm-hmm. But they went on, and I thought they did a real good job at that. I agree with you. It was a fun scene, and it, 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 you know, it was a bit of a highlight in the movie at that time when everything else was quite a pain in the ass to watch. And, of course, Halle Berry is not very hard to look at it either, is she? She's a very attractive actor, of course, yeah, very beautiful woman, but I thought she was terrible in this movie. Oh, yeah, but see, every movie she's been in, Scott, she is not an actress, She's just there to look at. <laughs> you think so, hey? I'm positive, yeah. Because, <laughs> okay. I mean, the acting in this one, but yeah. in the, every time I've seen her, I just, I, well, I certainly wouldn't be bothered going to make, make an effort to go to the movies to see her. Fair enough, yeah. That was the year that she won an Oscar that year. Before. She won an Oscar for a movie called Monster's Ball. And she was actually, she accepted the award at the Academy Awards while this film was being filmed. So quite literally, she was an Oscar winner as this movie was being made. Oh, really? Yeah, and she still remains, I believe, she still remains the only African-American actress to win. That has an Oscar, Oscar, well, that's something. For a leading role. I think I'm I'm correct in saying that. I could be wrong now, but I, I think so. Because I didn't think she could act at all. Yeah, yeah. At the time, anyway, she definitely oh, well, was. Maybe the when, they, was. when they were giving out Oscars, they, they weren't so particular. Well, they didn't call you. Oh, they, didn't have, they didn't have that many choices, anyway. And they didn't call you. <laughs> and yes, they didn't ask me. That's right. Exactly. They didn't ask either, either of us. <laughs> but this, especially, especially if it was James Bond, Bill. Well, let me ask you this, but, Granio. Um, this movie, <laughs> this movie was the last one Pierce Brosnan would do. And, you know, we had GoldenEye and we had Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough. And then we had this one. I feel very bad for Brosnan because I've always liked his James Bond. I always felt he's a good actor. Yeah, me too. He took it seriously, but the stories around him were just terrible, weren't they? I would like to have seen Pierce Brosnan hang on and do another one. You know, it would have been nice to see him do another one, a good one. He, like but a he, did, he good did a good one. job. I, I still associate Pierce as one of the, I say, we'll say number two. So is is Die Another Day a stinker down at the bottom of your pile, yeah? yeah I guess I, I, I will put him down there. I don't know if it's going to be at the bottom. But I must say, after seeing it last night, I thought, I don't remember anything about it. And after... I finished watching it. I still don't know anything about it. Well, thank you very much for your comments, and I'll let you know what our next film <laughs> so is. So you got the message, right? I did. <laughs> so there you go, double O-G-O on <laughs> Die Another Date. What do you think of her comments, then? Um... I would have expected to be honest with you. Not too dis not, not too different to ours, really. Not too different from ours, no. Yeah. She seems I think she kind of had fun with I can tell she had fun with the movie. Um I, I will admit that like I was at the bottom of my bond list. Uh it's entertaining to a a very, 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 very shallow degree. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, but I mean, why not watch another action movie instead, you know? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, just watch a better action movie. You know, I'd rather watch like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or um, something else. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. All right. Well, there we go. Thank you, Granio, for your help on that one. And uh, we'll let you know in just a few moments time what our next film is going to be. But first, BFG, we have two features left. We have to talk a little bit about uh, some literary connection, if indeed we can. And of course, we have a close quiz. Are you ready for it? You're flying solo today. Uh, okay, I'll do my best, I suppose. Right, so you're going to have to channel also your uh, your partner's skills here. Um, yeah. We've got. I'll call, our... up his, I'll call up his astral projection, <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Strange style. Well, uh, look, I got I got nine questions plus a bonus. Okay, fair enough. So let's see how you do. Let's begin the Die Another Day clothes quiz. Didn't like the film so much. Maybe you enjoyed the clothes. Did you have a comment on the clothes to to lead off with? How do you think sartorially Broston holds up here? How does he measure? In this film, I would say it's weaker compared to his other efforts, particularly like in Tomorrow Never Dies and World's Not Enough. Yeah, okay. Well, let, let's see then. Uh, for my part, I quite liked his clothes here. I think Bres- uh, I think Brosnan's a really sharp, sharply dressed Bond. Um, the style is, you know, is very indicative of the 90s. I still think this is a very 90s sort of dressing Bond, but we'll, um, we'll have to see how you get on. So question number one. Gray pinstripe two-button suit with a light blue shirt. Now, he wears this twice, this suit. Once with a gray tie with a blue circle motif, and once with a red patterned rectangles on a navy back. Either one of those moments where we see him with this dark gray light pinstripe suit. I would wager on the plane going back to London, and then also when he goes to to the MI6 on the London Underground. I will give you that, my friend. Yes, meeting with M in the underground. Also, he wears the same suit with the red tie during the sex simulation. Oh, with Money Penny, okay. remember? With okay. Money Penny at the end there, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, let's move on. And by the way, like in terms of dumb gadgets, that was brought in for the sole purpose of that scene, wasn't it? Just <laughs> oh, abs- oh, yeah, absolutely. And that so kind of like, 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 I, that was just such a jarring moment too. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah, we literally so Money Penny is dead. What? What's happening right now? What is wrong with this movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are they trying to do to the audience with that? Some example of them just trying to jerk the audience around. Number two, long sleeve white linen cap shirt with the sleeves rolled up. And I'm going to give you a hint here, okay? With this one, with this long sleeve white linen shirt, this shirt is the only part of the outfit that we can see at this point in the film. So Sorry. We, don't know, we don't know what he's wearing down below. Mm. Long sleeve, white linen shirt with the sleeves rolled up. When does Bond wear that? When he's talking to, when he first meets Jinx on, on, the, uh, on, on the patio of the resort. Mm, good guess. That was a good guess. A noble effort. It's incorrect. It's when he's in Cuba meeting with Raul, smoking a cigar and inspecting the diamonds. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, let's go on to this one then. Number three. You're one for one. Sorry, one and one. Charcoal worsted flannel suit. The white shirt with mid-blue tie with the tiny honeycomb patterns. He wears this under a full-length, single-breasted navy overcoat with a scarf. Once again, that's a charcoal worsted flannel suit, white shirt with a mid-blue tie, tiny little honeycomb pattern, worn under a full-length, single-breasted navy overcoat with a scarf. 
Uh, that has to be when uh, he's watching like Graves uh, like uh, parachute into London. Uh, with a Buckingham Palace or whatever? Or? That's a good guess, but no, that's when he's in the control room with Jinx, Falco, uh, M. They're all together there uh, setting oh, up yeah. the climax. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Gotcha. That's okay. Uh, moving on. When does Bond wear the midnight blue dinner suit with a cotton voile shirt, black silk thistle-shaped bow tie? When does he wear his tux, if you want to call it that? In the Ice Palace. Correct. There you go. Here we go. Next one. Question number five. You are shooting at 500 right now. You've got two wins and two losses. When does James Bond wear an outfit of double leather? A tan leather jacket over a smaller dark brown leather button-down coat. Both are worn, by the way, over a dark gray button shirt. So once again, we've got an outfit of double leather. Tan leather jacket over a smaller dark brown leather button coat. That has to be in the opening sequence. It certainly is. Good for you, BFG. Well done on your own there. Yep. Because he's wearing this the smuggler, yeah. That's right, Mr. Van Bierk. Uh-huh. Van Bierk, yeah. Okay, try this one on. A dark tan linen suit with dark blue shirt with faint stripes. Dark tan linen suit. When do we see him wearing linen suit? That would be on the plane. Mm, no, that's when he's visiting Cuba, infiltrating the clinic. Oh, okay. Remember the blue shirt? Oh, ten, ten, ten. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I wasn't thinking. Okay, let's try this one then. Um, when does James Bond wear a neoprene jacket over a charcoal gray cashmere polo neck? A neoprene jacket over a charcoal gray cashmere polo neck. So you're thinking turtleneck, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it has to be in Iceland. Okay, yes, I'm really wanting to give you the point, but when in Iceland, when do we see him wear it? When he is... Parasailing? Mm, yeah, I'm going to give you that one. Exploring Graves' island, or his yeah. lair. I'm going to give you that one, yep, for sure. Okay, uh, a navy bird's eye suit. Now, bird's eye is like fabric woven with little small diamond pattern, okay? Uh, white shirt with two ties. He wears the first a floated design in red, and the second has gold and navy squares. So it's a navy bird's eye suit. Just thinking a dark, dark suit, really. You wouldn't be able to tell that it's a bird's eye suit from maybe without close-ups, which we do get, but he wears them on two occasions, a red tie and a navy and gold tie. I guess when he cleans up in uh, Hong Kong and then when when he's on the plane to look to London... Good for you. You got both of them. Well done. Now, I'm only giving you one mark because it was one question, but you actually hit on both of the times he wears it, too. That's really well done. Thank you. Uh, let's try this one, then. Number nine. Short sleeve blue floral shirt with embroidered pattern, not printed. Worn over a white vest with navy linen trousers. Short sleeve. Blue floral shirt. Well, that has to be on, uh, at the resort's. What resort? In Cuba. In Cuba, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's when, when, he meets, when, he, when he meets Jinx. That's right. You got that one right. So you did pretty good there. You got uh, seven correct and two incorrect. That's pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. Having started off not so well, you did well there. But now here's a bonus question for you. Die Another Day marks only the second time James Bond wears a scarf in the entire franchise. Name the other film. Oh... Quantum of Solace? 
Mm, no, no. The other time that James Bond wears a scarf is when he masquerades as Sir Hilary Bray in Majesties. Oh, I thought Bond wore a scarf with this coat, like in at the end of uh, Quantum of Solace when he's like in Russia or whatever. Mm, that's a good and and, and also in Skyfall question. too. No, I don't think he does. If he does, then we'll go back and retroactively award you the point for the bonus question. But no, uh, the answer to that one, according to the Suits of James Bond, and uh, of course we give a shout out to Matt Spazier. There's a good good website there from which I got some of that information. Yeah, that's... Yeah, Sir, Sir Hillary Bray, yeah, that's right. So, good work, though. I, I think seven and two on your own is something to be proud of. Thank you. And now then, Josh, for our literary section, okay? We don't have Die Another Day, the book, thank God, because I don't really want to read from that. But what we do have, as I teased at the start of our episode, is a rather interesting book that came out um, in 1960... Oh, this is the Kingsley Amos one you're talking about. Yeah, that came out in 1965. Okay, Kingsley Amos published a book called The James Bond Dossier, which is a series yes. of sort of literary reflections on the character, okay? Call them essays if you want, but also written with a very uh, general readership sort of tone. But at some points, it gets quite esoteric right. as well. well. So even back then, they had like those things where, you, where to now where you can go to a, any chapters or Barnes and Nobles or Walden Books or, you know, whatever's the big selling bookstore in your country mm -hmm. uh, that you can go to any entertainment section of those bookstores and get any, get in for, get a, get like a behind the scenes or collector's item or some sort of like paraphernalia for a movie that you're interested in. Well, kind of, yes, but I would probably put this on a, a step or two above the regular sort of fan productions because Kingsley Amos, of course, was... Well, the ones uh, you get in the, in the bookstores aren't fan productions because they're actually like published like hardcover yes. books and stuff like that um, that are they're hired by the movie studio to do like the art of yes. or behind the scenes of or something like that. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say, maybe I'm not selling this properly. Amos, this is far more literary. It's about Fleming's Bond, not the books, not the films. It's about okay. Fleming's Bond and it's about him as a literary character and the evolution literary of criticism. sort of... Yes, literary criticism, the evolution of his masculinity, the gender relations, the, the politics of the series, all that sort of stuff. And what gotcha. I'm going to read from now, and the reason I'm going to read from it, is a section of, a section from chapter 11 entitled The Shirtle Saxonberg System. Okay, that's what the title of the chapter is. And this, this section, the reason I've selected it is because I think Amos is talking about how as the Bond series progressed in books, some of the plots became more and more outlandish, but there was always a feature or two or three about the outlandishness that you could hold on to and which was painted by Fleming in really careful reality. So that even though oh. you're reading something that's quite insensible, you're believing it because of some of the, the work that he puts into that, okay? So I'll just uh, read you a little bit of that. About. Yeah, kind of. Only this film doesn't have a lot of that. You know, I think what you're going to hear here is Kingsley Amos positing that, you know, when the stories were getting crazy, there were still elements of character that we could go along with. Whereas in this film, Die Another Day really doesn't offer much of this. So maybe this will generate some discussion either between us or among our listening public of how, how far deviated the, this film takes the Bond character, okay? 
Hasn't fought a giant squid in the movies yet. <laughs> Not yet. Not much mind is needed to notice that Bond's adventures have been getting more fantastic all the time, and some critics have actually done it. While the striking exception, with the striking exception of Hugo Drax's plot to obliterate London, the operations of the earlier villains are comparatively modest in scope. Diamond smuggling, individual assassination, the maintenance of funds to communist organizations in the West. Dr. No got things on the move, rather, when he started feeding wrong instructions to American-guided missiles in flight. Goldfinger followed up strongly with his projected seizure of Fort Knox, and Blofeld's schemes, whether as chairman of Spectre or in a more private capacity, were never, were never conceived in a fit of caution. Indeed, his final appearance showed him, all sanity gone, running a garden of poisonous trees and shrubs in Japan with no other motive than the enjoyment of watching suicidal locals doing themselves to a death with it. With this last exception, the fantastic element in the various conspiracies is always played down. The methods used are described in apparently exhaustive detail, with a constant emphasis on logic and forethought, and the utmost use is made of realistic background material. Thus, we know perfectly well that, even if they are international criminal cartels like Spectre, they couldn't hijack a NATO bomber with a couple of nuclear bombs on board and wouldn't try. But if there were, and could and would, then they'd use someone exactly like Patachi to do the job for them. We suspend our disbelief in Spectre and its designs while we're believing so heartily in Patachi's early history, in his surrender to the Allies in World War II with his Fox Wolf 200, uh, one of the few of its type in the Italian Air Force, not just with his plane, and its load of the latest German pressure mines charged with the new hexagon explosive, not just a new type of mine. We don't notice how thin Spectre's ultimate chances of delivering the bombs may be while we're running our mental fingers over the solidity of the ship, which is, due to, which is to do the delivering. Quote, The motor yacht Disco Volante was a hydrofoil craft built for Largo with Spectre funds by the Italian constructors Leopoldo Rodriguez of Messina, the only firm in the world to have successfully adapted the Schertel-Saxenberg system to commercial use. With a hull of aluminum and magnesium alloy, the Daimler-Benz four-stroke diesel supercharged by twin brown Bovary turbo superchargers, the Disco Volante could move her 100 tons to around at around 50 knots, with a cruising range at speed at that speed of around 400 miles. She'd cost 200,000 pounds, and so it goes on. Now, you and I have never heard of Leopoldo Rodriguez, though we admire the touch of giving him a Portuguese surname, and we couldn't care less whether the Schertzel-Saxenberg system works, the steering, or the lavatory flush of the Disco Volante, but we appreciate being told about them. We want our money's worth, the sense of a careful, visualizing, researching intelligence behind the writing. Now, this might be called the imaginative use of information, whereby the prevailing, the pervading fantastic nature of Bond's world, as well as the temporary, local, fantastic elements in the story are bolted down to some sort of reality, or at least counterbalanced. In addition, Very Tom Clancy, I, I, I just wanted uh, to yeah. mention. In addition, it provides motives and explanations for action, and the information itself is valuable not simply as information, but in the relish and physical quality it lends to the narrative. A gunboat in a well-written boys' book can't just be a gunboat. It must be, say, of the Zulu class with five 4.7s arranged in two pairs, forward and aft, and a single one amidship. Not, again, just to be believable or because we like guns, but also so that the gunboat shall be fully there. To mention boys' books, by the way, doesn't denigrate this interest, it really helps to define it. The imaginative use of information and so on is rather a mouthful, and it's so highly characteristic of these books, so much their very essence, that I don't see why it shouldn't be called the Fleming Effect. 
Thunderball is full of it. The biographies of Blofeld and Largo as well as Patachi, not long, but bristling with factual detail. The headquarters of Spectre and the precise workings of Furco, Spectre's front, front organization. The plan for the reception of the Ransom and its disposal. The U.S. Navy's atomic submarine, the Manta. Even the treasure grounds of the southern Bahamas. The Disco Volante is only pretending to be looking for Spanish galleons, but Spectre and Mr. Fleming are thorough. The El Capitan, quote, the El Capitan and San Pedro, both sunk in 1719, carried a million and half a million pounds of treasure, respectively. Every so often, the Fleming effect takes on an added note of conviction, with the author not only caught up in the enjoyment of facts and the counterfeiting of facts, but deeply absorbed, writing with an energy that shows he's dealing with something personally important to him. The most unmistakable of these interests is Underwater Swimming, which appears in five out of the 13 books and each time sends the emotional temperature soaring. Even Mr. Fleming's detractors have conceded that he handles the subject adequately. Gambling figures importantly in four of the books, and as marginal decoration in two more. One of these is Thunderball. Bond and Largo are going to fight it out finally in a couple of fathoms down, but Mr. Fleming can't resist making them fight it out in the casino as well. Fast cars are always turning up and getting things moving in the same sort of way, but a full list would have to include topics, like gold and diamonds, which make only appearance once. I said just now that to work properly, the Fleming effect had got to be geared into the action. Depth swimming, gambling, fast driving all have obvious links with battle, murder, and sudden death, as well as being active pursuits in themselves. Health foods, which we hear a lot of in that curiously off-key introductory episode in Thunderball, are not a subject we think of as being a crackle with drama. But Mr. Fleming, who characteristically is as interested in the Petalian and the trypsin side of the matter, both of which, by the way, are enzymes, actually. Uh, Pitalin is found in the mouth, trypsin in the intestine. It's all there at the beginning of chapter 7. So Mr. Fleming, interested in these, uh, in this side of the matter, as in the untechnicalities of yogurt and black treacle, is very ingenious about weaving these things together. The health foods come in naturally enough after Bond's adverse medical report and his stay at Joshua Wayne's clinic, which is soon enlivened by his duel with a minor Spectre agent. This is fought with such outlandish weapons, traction machine, sweat box, that we don't care about or notice the removability of the whole affair. Now, the, the passage goes on, Josh, uh, Amos goes on and talks about that part of Thunderball, which we like so much, uh, which is uh, Domino sort of reveling in the player cigarette man, you know, and right. what what I guess I, I really like about that section, and I kind of came upon this serendipitously as I was looking through the book, knowing that we didn't have real source material to draw on, is this idea which Kingsley Amos defines or he he calls, he, he, he calls it the Fleming effect, this idea that if you're dealing with an implausible plot, you adapt well better make the things around very real you know you had got to get get the guns right on the boat get the plans ornate get the backstories of the pilots who are going to do the crazy thing make the reader go through them so we feel the reality of something and that therefore somehow allows the silly stuff to be more gravitational you know to be a bit yeah. more grounded and i really really like that and i think that amos is onto something because that's one of the things that does allow you to suspend your disbelief but here it's the world building. Day. Yeah, it's the world building, but it's also the believability building. You know, yes. that's here. part of world building, though. Like you, it's every detail that you put in there. That's it's, right. It's the effort you put in to make your world real and oh, I'm ta sorry. tactile. I'm sorry. Yeah, 
yeah to the to the reader I that's what that's what that's what world building is all about that's why it's such a big craze nowadays and 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 uh, whether on television or in novels or whatever everyone loves uh just like an elaborate elaborate you know mm-hmm. uh, world and Fleming did did that very well he created a kind of a, a universe for bond and and he made that universe work and be believable and had working parts to it mm-hmm. but when you go to a story that just goes from set piece to set piece without any real establishment and then you try to ham fist an explanation for these things that don't fit with the world that we know of it, mm-hmm. then it's going to fall flat. It's not, it's not going to convince us. We're going to lose our, our immersion. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why this film falls flat for us and probably for so many other fans is because there's no care put into the story to make us believe or invest in really any of this. Like, you know, we're talking really about literary verity, aren't we? We're talking about truth and that you know we then we have madonna's character she's the only verity in the, in the story <laughs> and well, I, by name by name only by name only like and that's exactly it right like there is no touch here to make us believe there's nothing to let us hang on to that 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 anchors our ride through the crazy moments it's just all crazy so that's, anyway yeah, i just thought that would be nice could have said it better than myself well in a, in a film that doesn't really offer us much in terms of uh source material why not do a little bit of literary theory, right? So hopefully, uh, hopefully you got something out of that. That's the uh, the Schertel Saxonberg system, chapter eleven, <laughs> chapter eleven there in the James Bond dossier. It's a good little book if you can get your hands on it. Tough to find. I don't know if there's been a reprint in a while. I got this copy secondhand on eBay, and it, it it wasn't easy to come by. So I don't know if you can get an original. I mean, this is a this is a reprint from 1967, so it's an older book you know i have a, seen that book like in yeah. used bookstores before i just at the time i think i, I didn't countenance it you know what i mean so anyway there you go and of course kingsley amos would go on to uh, to write colonel moon the story one yeah. of the, it may even have been the first james bond novel after the death of fleming and i also just remembered this when we did the man with the golden gun i remember us discussing that amos was sent the original draft to do the rework on it wasn't he by cape that's right and yes so the revisions to the script hmm. Interesting. So there you go. Hope you enjoyed that. All right. And now then, BFG, it's time for us to close the show and select our film for episode 26. I'm glad we didn't end on Die Another Day. You know, I really am. I think that would have been a big drag, I think, for, for the end of the series. I, I agree. I, to, to be honest, any of the ones that we have remaining... I think they're fine to end the series on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so let's see what happens. Can you please, now, Josh, we're going to have to work harder today. I'm going to step in and help you open the doors to our casino today and welcome in our guests because Jeff's not here. So so let's get to it, shall we? Yeah, so I summon my orcs to uh, whip the trolls, move the winches and move the giant wheels so the, so the casino doors open up for our clients outside. Well, that's a lot of work. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to open well, the doors I'm- myself. It's not hardly any work at all. I just tell the, the guy <laughs> okay. to, to start whipping, start flogging. Okay, and speaking of flogging, I think that horse is dead. So here we go. Inside wheel is spinning. Welcome to the casino. Welcome to the show. Let's see what we've got. Very indecisive today. Very indecisive. Here we go. The next film is Bond number...
one. It is Dr. Dr. No. no. We're going right back to the beginning with Dr. No. Bond okay. number one. I, mm. I seriously think we're saving Leah Leblason to kill for last. I think it's going to be the last one. It might be. Yeah, it might be. I stopped, as you know, I stopped uh, predicting a long time ago. But Dr. No is going to be our next film. Looking forward to it. Really looking yeah. forward to it. Absolutely. Going back to the basics. And how do you think Jeff will feel about this one? Uh, I think he'll be happy with this one for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, look, pal, uh, we've done a number here with Die Another Day and we've put it to death. So, yeah, well done. I don't think there's anything we haven't done. We have drawn blood from the stone, haven't we? We definitely have, to go back to our earlier metaphor. And, uh, Dr. No, right up ahead. So, yeah, uh, thanks for tuning in. No, I was going to say, and gentle listeners, please, uh, if you can think of any other uh, previous Bond film uh uh, homages or uh, Easter eggs, as they call them these days, uh, from Die Another Day, write us in and uh, we'll discuss and see if we agree with you. Well, we'll, we'll agree. agree with you, of course. Yeah. Oh, we'll agree, but you know, it's not it's not up for it's not up for agreement. It's probably just to point out the ones that we couldn't think of on the spot. Yeah, but I mean, you just don't pull things out of thin air. You know what I mean? Do you know what though? Like, I I just didn't like Die Another Day enough to want to go do that work. Do you know what I mean? I would rather just have someone tell me where they all are, and I'd be like, yeah, that's which really is what cool. our audience is <laughs> going to do for us. Now, that's of course if you remember Die Another Day to a T, or go online and find information on it. We're not saying to go watch the movie again. God no, no God no. We wouldn't want that from anyone. But let let me ask you the serious question, just in closing our episode. Do you think you'll put this one on again? If I was doing a French, like a whole franchise run through in a couple of years down the road, yeah, I, I can't see the reason why. Okay, but that's it. Like you wouldn't watch, you wouldn't pick this one up to watch for any particular moment, would you? No, not at all. I would also definitely probably have a bottle of beer next to me as well. Mm, at least one, huh? At least one. And speaking of beer, Red Stripe, Jamaican beer is where we're going next with Dr. No. Oh, yeah. Underneath the mango tree, behind. <laughs> I look forward to your renditions of that song. Not as much as Connery's. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, once again, guys, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, find us, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter or email at bombbynumbers3 at gmail.com. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, and I can't imagine why you would want to join us for Die Another Day as your first episode, but if indeed you are, then get yourself online, download our other episodes, and uh, take this journey with us. We're getting ready to do Dr. No in a couple weeks' time, and hopefully we'll have Mr. Chapman back with us then, too. Your mama. <laughs> Yo, mama. <laughs> right, take it easy, BFG. Cheers. Cheers.